Welcome to Snape Chat, the voice of the Snape Dog, the podcast where we discuss all things Snape, always. Join us as we dive into the world of the bravest man we ever knew in art, fanfic, meta, and more, obviously. This is Snape Centric with episode 25, the Snollida edition for 2022. I'm joined by Jalapeno Eye Popper, Masa the Dog, and newcomer Blendy as we listen to Snollida Fix by Kuniganda, Pet Genius, Starstruck 1986, Dampuff, Marshmallow McGonagall, and Subversa. It's a jumbo-sized show with great fix for everyone. Enjoy the show. Can you hear that? Yep. Yep. All right. Okay, well, I guess we can start then. (laughs) Hi, this is Snape-centric. I'm here with... Jalapeno Eye Popper. Hi, everybody. You can call me Hal. Blendy. Hi. And Masa the Dog. Hey there. And we're going to do our holiday show. And thank you for joining us. And that's enough sleigh bells, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Oops. There we go. <laughs> okay. We, we have six fix for you. They range from four minutes to 41 minutes, I think. So let's go ahead and get started. The first one is called Solstice Carol in Two-Part Harmony, and it's by Kunaganda, read by Snape Sailtape. Here we go. Solstice Carol in Two-Part Harmony by Kunaganda. Summary. It's the first winter solstice after the war, and there's more than one Scrooge spoiling the festive atmosphere. Yep, it's a Christmas Carol parody fic, because one can never have too many, right? Notes. Disclaimer slash reclaimer. I stand in solidarity with the trans community and disclaim Rowling's abhorrent and incorrect statements about trans people. Like many of you, I feel a need to reclaim and own the stories and characters that have meant so much to me since childhood, while recognizing the harmful elements within those stories. I'll try and keep this short and sweet like a sugar plum, which, incidentally, after three decades living on this earth, I finally decided to look up, and they are not at all what I thought they were. I've thrown in some sentences here and there that come straight from Dickens, and even more are loosely and disrespectfully paraphrased. I always forget how hilarious a Christmas carol is until I revisit it again. So, credit to Charles Dickens, who probably wouldn't enjoy what I'd done with his work at all. I'd like to extend my very warmest wishes to all of you this holiday season, whatever traditions or non-traditions you keep. Especially those of you who, like myself, are keeping their loved ones safe by spending the holidays alone this year. I see you, you're doing a wonderful thing, and even though you might be alone, you're not alone alone. And to everyone for whom this time is especially difficult, I hope from the bottom of my heart that better times lay ahead. Thanks to all of you, and here's to a happy winter solstice. Recitative. Everyone was dead. To begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The bodies have been laid out across the Hogwarts lawn, there for all to see in the cool light of dawn, until mercifully the volunteers came through to shroud them. Their deaths were registered, names read out, a shrine erected to their memory. Yes, everyone was as dead as a doornail. Well, not everyone. But you'll excuse a little hyperbole for the sake of the drama, won't you? In fact, a surprising number of people remained alive, if just barely. Some, who really ought to have been dead as doornails, defied all expectations by making it to the first winter solstice after the dreaded battle. Come with me, reader. Let us join them. On this, the longest night. Our tale begins, as many fantastical tales do, 
in bed. The bed is inside a cramped little room, inside a little house, gray and decrepit. So unremarkable and out of the way that you'd be hard-pressed to find it, even if its occupant wished to be found. In the bed lies a little man, gray and decrepit, so unremarkable he nearly blends into the linens. He is alone. That's of his own doing. He's a miserly man, and selfish. He might have had friends, a family to share the warmth of his hearth, but he gave up all of that in favor of his sad, lonely, gray little life. Look upon him with pity, reader, but not with sympathy. He chose this for himself. Wait, where are you off to in such a hurry? Aha, I see. You think you have it all figured out, don't you? You know exactly where this is going. You're impatient. Cut the preamble and get to the good stuff, right? I see you now, scratching at the frosted window at Spinner's End, trying to get a glimpse of the pathetic figure inside. Well, you can take a step back. Stop gawking. It isn't his turn yet. You really ought not to jump to conclusions like that. No, the lonely old miser in question is Remus Lupin. Lupin, I hear you cry, but Lupin is a peach. How could he be lonely? Everyone likes Remus Lupin. Lupin is gentle, funny, and charismatic. He's kind and generous to all friends, protégés, casual acquaintances, and passers-by. And shouldn't there be a loving bride and a little baby somewhere in that tableau? Furthermore, miserly? Lupin? Miserly? How could that be? He hasn't got any money to be stingy with. It's true. In fact, he's always been rather liberal with his few material possessions. That's not the issue at hand. Remus Lupin is close-fisted with his emotions. He's parsimonious with his heart. Oh, I'm sure he would be chuffed to hear you call him generous and charismatic and peachy and all the other qualities enumerated in the antecedent paragraphs. But let's reflect upon his nearly 40 years of existence, which I cannot stress enough is far longer than anyone would have gambled on for him. How many friends, true friends, has he had in that time? How many has he trusted, confided in? How many people has he allowed himself to love? He thinks himself dependable because he'll show up in a crisis, but where does he go during the good times? With whom does he share life's little joys? Celebrations, dinner parties, stag nights, and weddings, and baby showers? He's conspicuously absent from all of them. Does he really believe that no one wants him there? Or does he simply not care? By now, reader, I'm sure you'd quite like some answers yourself. Take my hand, then, and come along. Let us endeavor to learn what we can from this sorry soul. Only let us make haste, so that we may return to our warmth and wassail. Stave one. Treble clef. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven? Who goes to bed before seven o'clock? It's been a long day, Lupin grumbled without raising his head. It has not. It's been literally the shortest day of the year. Lupin let out a dismissive harumph and rolled over in bed. A beat later, he bolted upright, clutching his wand. Who's there? he cried out. He was greeted by a vibrant laugh that seemed to pour from every corner of the room. You can put your implement away, Remus Lupin. Implement? Lupin repeated indignantly, looking down at his wand. That's right. Your magic won't affect me, for I am the spirit of Solstice Past. Oh, Lupin said. I'm sorry, but I've seen a lot of spirits, and you don't look like one at all. In fact, the figure looming before him didn't look much like anything. Its form was indistinct, constantly shifting, and it was cocooned in garments and trinkets that seemed to come from every era of human history. 
I really should know by now not to mix potions before bed, Lupin berated himself. No potion can conjure me, for I am not of this world. A nightmare, then. Well, I'm not afraid of nightmares anymore. I know what you really are. You're nothing more than an undigested bit of kibble, a blob of cheese, a deep-fried Mars bar. Man of worldly mind, I shall prove soon enough that— Wait, what was that about kibble? Nothing. Go on. Right. We may need to dispatch another apparition to come chat with you about your eating habits, but for now, Remus Lupin, let us journey into your past. No, thank you, Lupin said, but his words were lost in howling wind as a spirit touched his hand and whisked him away to another time and place. Hogwarts, 1993, the spirit announced as they landed in the festively bedecked Great Hall. Yeah, I can see that. It was only five years ago, you know. It must have been lunchtime. Lupin watched his past self polish off his pudding at the near-empty head table. Embarrassingly, his stomach began to rumble as he eyed the remaining food on the table. All right, Lupin groused. I get it. I need to cut down on the fried food. Now can we- Silence, Remus Lupin, the spirit boomed. And then somehow they had moved, and Lupin was watching himself scurry after Severus Snape as he made his way to the exit. Severus, past Lupin called out. Do you have a moment? For you? Never, Snape said, but he stopped and turned to face past Lupin anyway. Oh, you. You're too much, past Lupin simpered. Snape scowled. I do that because it pisses him off, Lupin stage whispered to the spirit. Past Lupin continued. I just wanted to give you a little- No, thank you, Snape interrupted. Something to mark the season. I know you don't celebrate Christmas, so I thought I would give it to you on the solstice instead. I don't want anything from you, Snape said curtly. I know, but I got you something anyway, past Lupin said, handing over a small, neatly wrapped box. Snape did not reach out to take it. Keep it, Snape said. I don't- Fine. I'll take it. Snape snatched the parcel from past Lupin's hands, chucked it over his shoulder, and vanished it in midair. Good day, Lupin, he sneered, pivoting rather stylishly and stalking off in a flurry of black fabric. Asshole, Lupin scowled, watching his past self gape in astonishment at the place where Snape had just been standing. Surely you're not still angry about such a trifling thing as that, Remus Lupin, the spirit asked. No, Lupin snapped as his past self shuffled awkwardly out of the great hall. Of course I'm not angry. Why, do I seem angry? Because I'm not, he growled. Come along, there's more to see, the spirit said, taking Lupin by the arm. Where? When? Lupin was at first disoriented by the dim, windowless room they landed in. As his eyes adjusted, he took in the setting with a sinking feeling. Later that same evening, Severus Snape's private quarters. This seems a bit voyeuristic, Lupin said, feeling distinctly uncomfortable. Snape was sat up in bed with a stripy knit blanket pulled up to his knees, looking down at an object he was holding in his lap. Lupin gasped when he saw what it was. That's my gift, so he didn't banish it into oblivion after all. Lupin and the spirit watched as Snape slowly and meticulously unwrapped the gift. Inside was a small box of chocolate bonbons from a posh muggle confectionery. I like to get people comestibles, Lupin said as an aside to the spirit. That way, if they don't like the gift, they're not saddled with it forever. That wasn't the only reason, though, was it? No, Lupin said with an involuntary shudder. With all the Dementors about that year, I figured chocolate wouldn't go amiss. I got the same gift for all the staff and faculty, actually. That's right. You always try to treat Severus Snape the same as any other colleague. He appreciated that, you know. He did? Lupin asked, surprised. Watch. After contemplating the box for a while, Snape opened the lid and selected a bonbon. He took a small bite of it and examined the filling inside. He didn't even check for poison, Lupin whispered. Hush. 
Snape finished the first bonbon, then partook of another and another. As he ate, a small smile played across his lips. Right, Lupin said a little louder. So why are we here? I mean, Snape ate the chocolates. That's nice. Didn't bother to acknowledge or thank me after, but that's fine. He's still an asshole. I didn't really need a mystical spirit to tell me that, no offense. My goodness, it really bothers you, doesn't it, Remus Lupin? What? That he didn't accept your gift. Yes, it bothers me. What of it? Lupin snapped. Why do you think that is? Because it was meant to be an olive branch. I was trying to be nice to him. I was always trying to be nice to him, and he kept rejecting me for no good reason. No good reason? The spirit repeated. If it had a face, or hair, their eyebrows would have shot up to meet their hairline. Well, I mean... Lupin suddenly felt ill at ease. Let's dig a little deeper, shall we? Before Lupin could catch his breath to respond, he found himself hurtling back in time again. They landed splat in the middle of a snowdrift near the front entrance to Hogwarts. Lupin opened his mouth to complain, but he was stopped short by the sight in front of him. Twelve-year-old Remus Lupin was trudging down the path away from the castle, red-faced and rather harried-looking. Close on his heels was an impossibly tiny-looking Severus Snape. Lupin, come on, wait up, will you? Snape called out. Winter holiday, your second year at school, the spirit whispered. Lupin, transfixed by the scene that lay before him, did not respond. Go away, Snape. Stop following me around, past Lupin growled without turning to look at his little dark-haired shadow. I'm not following you, Snape brazenly lied. What do you want, past Lupin shouted, spinning on his heels so abruptly that Snape nearly stumbled into him. Watching himself, Lupin hissed to the spirit, I don't need to see this. Oh, um... Snape seemed as if he hadn't actually come prepared with an answer. I was just wondering if you wanted to play gobstones for a while before dinner. I'm busy. Maybe tomorrow? Busy. Did you have to track me outside to ask me that? Snape shrugged. I learned some really neat spells over the summer. There's this book I nicked from my mom that I've been practicing with. Wanna see? I don't want to see whatever kind of dark spells you think are neat, Snape. Pass loop and spat. Oh, all right. Snape looked down, towing at the snow. Maybe we could build a snow witch like we did last year, he asked hopefully. Please, Lupin whispered more urgently to the spirit. I know what happens next. Please, I don't want to see it. The spirit reached out and held an icy finger to Lupin's lips. I don't want anything to do with you, past Lupin cried. His face was blotchy and livid. The snow between the two boys began to rise, whirling like a little tornado. Just leave me alone, snivelous, and stop being so, so... Weird! As he shouted these words, the miniature snow flurry stopped cycling and hit Snape square in the chest with enough force to knock him backwards. Lupin whimpered, watching his past self turn and run away from the scene. That's enough, please! Oh, I beg your pardon, said the spirit, who was suddenly standing directly in front of Lupin. They reached into their reticule and procured a book. Perhaps you'd rather have this to hide behind? They opened the book and held it in front of Lupin's face. A breeze picked up, ruffling the pages, and they began to turn over one by one. Every page showed Lupin another deplorable thing that he had said, done, or passively allowed to happen. Many involved Snape, but there were plenty of other people in the book, too. Lupin tried to look away. The wind stung his eyes, but he was unable to blink, unable to move an inch, forced to look straight ahead until the pages came to an end. The snow was coming faster now, surrounding him, blinding him, and he was shaking so violently he could hardly keep himself upright. And then the white turned to gray, and he was back in his bed, shivering. The fire was smoldering in the hearth. Lupin relit it with a flutter of his numbed fingers. 
He pulled the duvet up to his chin and waited for heat to pervade the room again. It had only been a dream. Stave one, base clef. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, good grief. Never tell me you're a morning person. Every day for 17 years, I woke at quarter to four in the morning to enjoy my precious few hours of solitude before a swarm of sticky school children came stampeding down the stairways. I've seen no reason to change my habits since my retirement. Actually, that makes sense. No wonder you're always so grumpy by lunchtime. I am not grumpy. And anyway, who the dickens are you? You're not in my usual rotation of spectral dream figments. Indeed, I am not Severus Snape. Arise, I am the spirit of solstice yet to come. Thanks, but I'm not interested at the moment. I've actually taken a dreamless sleep potion. Feel free to have a seat and relax until that kicks in. Should be any minute now. Severus Snape, the voice boomed, filling the room and reverberating against the cheap glass window panes. Snape groaned. Must you? Fine, fine. I'm awake. You have my attention. Make your pitch. Foolish man of flesh and bone, you think you have a choice in this matter? I am the spirit of solstice yet to come. Snape narrowed his eyes. Oh, I see. I've heard this. Not to interrupt your flow, but are you not meant to be preceded by the ghosts of past and present? The spirit of solstice past is currently engaged elsewhere. Look, we have a lot of clients to fit into one night. Not everyone can get the classic chronological. Snape snorted. That figures. I'm not even the most important person in my own revelatory paranormal event. Silence! I am here to show you your future, Severus Snape. Yes, I'd sorted that part out already. So, what's it gonna be? Former colleagues toasting my death at my funeral feast? My so-called friends picking over the pitiful remnants of my worldly possessions? My cold, broken gravestone lying face down in the mud. Nothing you can show me will shock me, spirit. Though as yet I know not when I shall meet my ignominious end, I know precisely where my dismal little life is headed, and I made my peace with it long ago, thank you very much. Is that so? The spirit of solstice yet to come smiled, or at least Snape thought that they smiled. Their form was blindingly bright, blurring every time Snape tried to focus upon it. Well then, Severus Snape, you have nothing to fear from me. Come, take my hand. Very well. Lead on, lead on. Everything vanished in a burst of golden light. When Snape returned to his senses, he was in a warm and spacious kitchen suffused with natural light. He saw his own body from behind, leaning over a cauldron that was, incongruously enough, simmering over a gas flame on the hob. Curious in spite of himself, Snape edged closer to his future self, trying to get a glimpse of what he was brewing. Whitish cast, enticing smell, amortentia? He drew a little closer and then staggered back in amazement. Eggnog? he gasped. That's right. You're famous for it. Here, stand back. You'll want to clear out of the way. What? Snape didn't even have time to ask before a streak of motion shot across the room and attached itself to future Snape's leg. What is that? Snape asked in alarm. That's a child, Severus Snape, the spirit answered with obvious amusement. I know that. Why is it here? Hey, Dad, the child asked as if in answer to Snape's question. Quite suddenly, Snape felt as if his knees had turned to jelly. Can I help? There's not much to help with at the moment, future Snape said with remarkable patience. I'll call you in when I need a taste tester. Okay, the child paused for thought. Do I like eggnog? You didn't like it when you were three, future Snape said, but perhaps you'll like it now that you're four. Four and a half, the child corrected. 
Feeling as if he might faint at any moment were he not already in a dream, Snape studied the child, trying to puzzle out where on earth it could have come from. It certainly didn't look like him. In fact, if anything, the boy bore a striking resemblance to Lupin, future Snape called out over his shoulder. Will you come scrape off this little barnacle that's clinging to my person? The child giggled. A moment later, Lupin himself appeared in the kitchen. That is, if such a spry and sprightly fellow could possibly be Remus Lupin. Lupin assessed the scene with a dreamy smile on his improbably smooth and full face, then approached future Snape and wrapped himself around his unoccupied side. He squeezed one arm around future Snape's waist and rested the other on top of his son's head. Lupin, future Snape drawled. Why is it that when I tell you your child is being a nuisance, you respond by making yourself an even bigger nuisance? What's a nuisance? The child, Teddy, wasn't it? Asked. It means very adorable, Lupin explained. May I have the use of my legs back? Future Snape asked. Teddy, Lupin said, why don't you go change into the new robes your mom got you? You do want to wear them to the party, don't you? Yeah. Do you think she'll be cross that we turned them purple? Teddy asked. Absolutely not. She's going to love the purple. Oh, and go get your overnight bag ready, too. You're going home with mom after the party. Okay, Teddy replied, already scampering out of the room. Do you really trust him to pack for himself? Future Snape asked in a low voice. Of course not. I just wanted to get you alone for a moment. Lupin wriggled a bit, insinuating himself between Future Snape and the cooker. Future Snape tugged Lupin away from the hob, bringing him flush against his body. Careful, Future Snape murmured. I'll be very put out if you catch yourself on fire ahead of this evening. Don't worry, Lupin murmured back, tracing a finger along Future Snape's spine. The only conflagration you'll be facing down tonight is the fire between my Lupin! Hmm, you know I love it when you use my little pet name like that, darling. All right, I think I've seen enough, Snape spluttered to the spirit. He felt feverish, and he knew that his face had gone crimson. Why did you bring me to this place, spirit? Aren't you supposed to show me my terrible fate so that I renounce my old ways and vow to change? Why isn't this terrible enough for you? The spirit asked genially. You despise children, and parties, and Remus Lupin. Surely you don't mean to tell me you actually want this future. Snape cringed. He'd been caught out. It's more agreeable than a moldering headstone, he conceded. Ah, now Snape was sure that the spirit was smirking at him, faceless or not. Remember, Severus Snape, that the things I show you may come to pass. Whether or not they will is entirely up to you. I've shown you this future not to frighten you from your current path, but to tempt you toward another. You think you know how it all ends for you simply because you've never considered any other possibility. And yet, it would be rather disappointing, would it not, if what you've witnessed tonight never came to pass? Snape was trembling. His eyes were locked on Lupin. The way Lupin smiled and simpered, the hungry way Lupin gazed at his possible future self. No one had ever looked at Snape that way before, and suddenly he felt passionately jealous of his doppelganger. He wanted to be the one touching Lupin, soaking in his gaze, basking in his warmth. You know, the spirit said conversationally, Normally, I'd be the one looming around silently while you do all the talking. Most mortals just keep asking me questions until they figure out the answers were within them all along. Actually, I'm really not used to the sound of my own voice prattling on like this. You're making me feel a bit self-conscious, if I'm being honest. The spirit paused, but Snape remained silent. Now that I'm thinking about it, my throat's getting scratchy, and you're only my first client of the night. I think I'd best get you back to your own time now. No, Snape whispered, not wanting to tear himself away from the vision of domestic bliss playing out before him. 
but he had no choice. The spirit's hand was upon him once more, and he was tumbling through the darkness until he landed gracelessly back in his empty bed. Okay. Yay! Yay. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun story. So much humor in it. Really, really on point with the snark. Yeah. You're not on my usual rotation of spectral dream figments. Things like that. Yeah, they're just a lot of fun. I do like the notion of taking a classic and like almost going into crack territory with it. That's, uh-huh. that's a good one. Nice approach. I've seen that in maybe a couple of fics. There aren't as many holiday fics as one might expect. That was something that maybe we mentioned in the prep for this, that it was actually hard to find and pick. I was curious as to your thoughts on why that was. Yeah. So first up, holidays mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And trying to capture that feeling is really hard. And a lot of us also do a lot more reading of fanfic during the holidays. And I know I personally um, am getting enough holiday from the holiday. So I don't actually seek out the holiday fanfics myself. And I, I wonder if that's a pretty common thing. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the characters themselves, we're all Snape fans here. And yeah. Snape in particular, we we might have a hard time picturing him having happy memories of his holidays. As sad as that is. <laughs> um, Very true, though. <laughs> yes. The, so So making it making it believable in that sense and fitting to his character it's almost required that it's a story like this one where he winds up snarking at everybody and you have to turn the turn the trope on its head where no he's not being shown a picture of doom and gloom he's being shown happiness and that's what gets under his skin yeah (laughs) so yeah those those are some of my surface thoughts on that and Gosh, I hope we get to do this again next year and that people will prove me wrong with the, like, there's not a whole lot of holiday stuff. Um, yeah, I'm hoping that that's the case. I think there's a lot of gift exchanges and such that probably right. don't make it to, say, AO3. You know, yeah. I know Live Journal has one. And there's also the fact that a lot of those gift exchanges wind up being like more personalized one shots. Mm-hmm. And it's not that that's a bad thing. It's just that they doesn't have the same like universal impact as some of the ones we would consider classics in the fandom. Right. Now my wheels are turning. I'm like, what kind of holiday fic could I write? <laughs> well, I have never written anything, so I cannot contribute to, to that part. But uh, I don't think I, I don't really read crack fics. Uh, I'm more into angst and fluffy stuff, well, depending on the mood, of course. But I don't think I've ever read anything that was specifically holiday fic. Like there was always some parts where they mentioned Christmas or depending on the holiday, of course, they, they choose. But I also, I have never read uh, anything that was a rewrite of, of this uh, holiday story. And in particular, having uh, from Remus past experiences where he was rude, that was a bit unexpected for me, but not, not, not in a bad way. So it's... Uh, I would like to see uh, them being happy. Of would have Snape's past experience be. Mm-hmm. It's like the rest of the year, I put him through so much. Well, I don't. But <laughs> the things I read do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I love Snoopin as a ship. That's a ship I read a lot of. So I definitely love the trope where you know Remus was a little shit to him when they were younger, and now he has to redeem himself so that they can get together. I like how it brought that out. I also am a sucker for Everybody Lives post-war mm-hmm. AU. 
So me too. Me too. <laughs> me too. Um, when I am looking for that happy holidays feeling, I definitely want to everybody lives kind of fake. I think the only I've written a couple where like holidays are an in passing thing mm -hmm. and definitely more of a everybody lives approach because that's the feeling I want at the holidays. Yeah, I like the part of fanfics where Snape has a partner, doesn't matter who it is. Uh, and they have some holiday celebration together or just, you know, a bit of a present that makes him smile. Or uh, That part is always, always so lovely. Uh, instead of having a horrible holidays, being spending it alone, which also happens in fix, but <laughs> I'm more in favor of him being happy, at least a little bit of the year. I realized that I think last year we had all Christmas fix and this one's more of a solstice one. And uh, I didn't really look up any traditions for it. I just thought of that when we got started this morning. That's, that's usually how my brain works. But uh, anyway, we're going to go from solstice to Hanukkah. Oh, boy. And do some Snape and Sun. And this is a work by Pet Genius, who wasn't able to join us. But it's just a nice little, little piece of... Uh, holiday goodness. Okay, oil and sugar by Pet Genius. Measurements are important in baking, son, Severus said looking down at his child. Octavius was unmistakably his, yet if one were to compare a photo of Severus when he was Octavius's age, one would scarcely believe them to be related. The child had a healthy glow about him, his clothes first-hand, clean and the right fit. Most importantly, Octavius held his head high, his chest out, his shoulders back, always confident and hopeful. Severus remembered very few moments in his childhood when he felt so free and so proud. Free and proud Octavius may be, but Severus was not about to raise a thunderhead. Before I even let you light a fire, let alone heat any oil, I want to see you measuring everything out properly. Measurements and timing. His son ran to the pantry and carried back two jars, one of sugar, one of flour. Next, he got a bottle of oil. His father took the bottle from his outstretched hand, uncorked it, and took a long whiff. Ah, he exhaled. Italian olives. Can't beat them, he thought for a moment. Measurement, timing, and ingredients. Now what, Daddy? Octavius asked. The kid was a wizard, yes, but not yet allowed to use magic outside of school. Severus sometimes pretended not to notice his son using a wand to cast minor spells, but he would not encourage rule-breaking. That was his mother's job. Besides, the muggle way was better for some things. In his experience, sloppy measurement spells produced results much inferior to sloppy measurements. Magic tended to amplify one's innate stupidity, Severus always thought. Liquids are measured in volume, and dry ingredients are measured in weight, typically, he incantated. Octavius's brows furrowed in concentration, and then his expression lit up. Severus told his son to look at the recipe and that he would be back to check soon, and then they would light a fire, finally, and get to working on their batter. I'll let you lick the spatula, he promised, and left the room with quick steps, perhaps too quick. He didn't want Octavius to see him crying. Happy tears were tears all the same, and the child was too young to understand. Why ruin his holiday with talk of endless days and nights in Cogworth in grandfather's long-deserted house? Ever since his son had been born, Severus found himself increasingly unable to control his emotions like he used to. It was undignified to cry in front of a child, so Severus left, always making sure to stay near enough to run back if he heard anything. He trusted Octavius not to blow up the kitchen until Severus sorted his cursed emotions out. Much more confident than Tobias, Severus's own father, ever was of Severus. 
The old indignation came up, swelling bitter and tart against his throat. Everything that ever went bad in Cokeworth was Severus's fault. Severus decided, leaning against the living room wall with the kitchen behind him, that even if Octavius would blow up the kitchen, he would be understanding, he would find it funny and endearing and take it in good humor. After all, the child could hardly cause damage his father or mother couldn't fix, and as for botched baked goods, they could afford more oil and more sugar, and Severus found that affluence and the child with a good head made for much more patience than he was used to. If you looked, you could never guess Octavius was a snape. I got one over you, Toby, Severus whispered and wiped his brow. He smiled, a forced smile at first, and then, as soon as he entered the kitchen, he felt the smile become real, stretching his cheeks out. The measurements were perfect, and the containers were placed right in the order in which they would need them. Flour, sugar, salt, and oil. That's a relief. I couldn't bear having my own flesh and blood show up at Hogwarts unable to measure out potions ingredients. Come on, Dad, I want them to be ready in time for Mommy. One could not help but feel the holiday cheer while elbow deep in dough, one son with his own smaller bowl kneading his own batch. Severus decided he would deliberately mix too much sugar into his batter. Octavius would be proud of having made the superior cookies. Okay. Oh, my heart. <laughs> this was lovely. Wow. So there's another aspect of holiday stuff that may be a factor in, in the fix is the the role of children and the magic of childhood around the holidays. And there's a whole range of people who really like that in a fic and really don't like that in a fic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I normally don't go for a uh, fix with kids, especially young kids. I have young kids. So fic is my escape from young kids. <laughs> and I, um, yeah. So I don't normally go for it um, partly because I know I'm going to listen to something like this and then go, Oh, my heart. But there's also what I was talking about with the maybe he didn't have a lot of happy holidays as a child himself and how that affects us as Snape fans. There it was. <laughs> you always want it to be better for him. Children, I guess, or a child indicate that he's in happier times. There's something super powerful about that line. Got one over on you, Toby. That was chef's kiss right there. Yeah, I don't have kids yet. But I, I want them, so I like reading uh, parts uh, where he has kids and he really is working hard to to make them have a better childhood. I think that's a, a, lo a lovely part of our fandom uh, in that matter of sense. And and also the part where he's teaching him to, to bake and do everything. It's not always detailed. Like uh, they write about, yes, they are making potions and whatnot together, but having it a bit more detailed is always, always so nice, at least for me. And um, my only downside about, about the, the kids is generally I'm not a big fan of OC characters. I like the, the originals more, even if it's uh, a bit out of character. Uh, but uh, this kid is very cute. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I am a sucker for like the fix where Snape has a kid no matter the age, really, young, older, either way, I always like to read him in very domestic situations, so I'm all for that. It's also had that slice of life element. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's obviously very special because of the holidays, and there's a lot of that background angst, but you can also see this as being not even necessarily a holiday scene, that they're just hanging out, working in the kitchen together, and that's, that's super sweet. That slice of life stuff is good for the kid fix. Yeah, I think just the fact that when we read the, the books, it's always near Hogwarts, in Hogwarts. And this is such an out-of-place uh, 
life experience from well, his life is a is a nice switch, I think, and and that makes it a also a lot more interesting for me personally. That genius wasn't able to join us, but the oil is used in cooking and baking. Veronica has that special significance mm-hmm. because of the uh, I don't know you say the miracle of the oil that lasted for eight nights for their lamps. I just wanted to bring that kind of in there. Yeah, all the food has oil in it. There's a lot of fried foods and everything like that. Right, yeah. Really tasty, too. (laughs) Oh, I bet it it sure looks like it, what I looked at online. Okay. Okay, the next one is a very rare pair, Snape and Ron, but it works. This is... Seraphim Beneath the Christmas Tree, read by Masao. Do you want to kind of introduce it a little bit? Uh, sure. Yeah, it's a very rare pair, and it honestly never occurred to me. And it was, I think it was October, like, or, or September, a couple of years ago, that somebody just sent it to me. And I was on a kick of reading all kinds of rare pairs, like Snagrid and Snilch. And I was like, Snape and Ron? okay, I got to read this. And I read it thinking like, you know, it's not my thing. I I really love Snary. So this kind of feels like it would be competing with that. But then I read it and I was like, oh man, I, I thought about it for like days after that. I even, I think I even drew fan art of it. Yeah, it was probably one of the first slash fix that I ever read. Oh, wow. And it was like, wow, this really works. Yeah, it really does. It's It's worth going to read listeners i definitely think so and like the premise is that like snape faked his death at the end of the war and he is basically like hiding out in this small little scottish town just trying to live his life when ron and Auror stumbles upon him accidentally and that is kind of how it starts out so yeah go read it so uh, seraphim beneath the christmas tree by starstruck 1986 What in the name of Morgana's tits is that? Ron spun round at the sleep-slurred language and laughed. It's a Christmas tree. I can see that, but what I want to know is why. Severus's snappy tone was marred by the sleepy yawn in his mouth and the tousled peaks of his hair. Because it's Christmas Eve, and we didn't have a tree. So I got one last night after I left the shop. What time is it? Severus frowned. Um, about half past seven, Ron shrugged. Why on earth? Ron snorted and dropped to his knees, pulling the lights for the tree towards him. Because I was up and I was kind of hoping to get this done before you came out here and got all bitchy about it. His only answer was the resounding bang of the bathroom door closing and he laughed again, the warmth of the fire washing over him as he looked at the plug. Please work. Please work. I can't remember how to wire a plug. Please work. He grabbed the white object and slotted it into the wall and with bated breath flicked on the switch. The floor lit up in an array of pinks, reds, greens, blues, and oranges, and he beamed. Fuck yeah, baby. Bet they break before I get them on the damn tree, though. He looked up at the surprisingly convincing faux pine tree and grinned. He had been smiling since the minute he'd woken up that morning. Ron got to his feet, pulling the lights with him, and began looping the string in equal circles around the body of the tree, coming back down to double up when he reached the top. Amazing how a string of muggle fairy lights can make me grin so much. George will be pleased I'm starting to show gay tendencies. Ron thought back over all the conversations he had had with his family, which involved them saying gems such as, but you don't act like a poof. And, are you sure? 
Ron wondered quite what it would take to show Percy that he was in fact more than sure, but his suggestion of fucking Severus where they could be found had not gone down well, most especially with the man in question. He ran out of lights and stepped back, appraising his work with a satisfied smile. And then, because he was lazy, he yanked out his wand and charmed the rest of the decorations to hang themselves evenly amidst the branches, and soon his tree was twinkling and glittering. Let's see if I can keep this one upright. The bathroom door creaked open and he heard feet on the floorboards, but didn't look round. Severus was undoubtedly not a morning person, and Ron assumed that his Christmas tree wouldn't even get a second glance until at least the third cup of tea. Are you going to spend every minute of the day sending this one flying? Severus's voice was low and teasing. You know, I think we should just let it go. If the tree had never fallen over, I would never have kissed you, and then who knows where we'd be this Christmas Eve, hmm? Ron said haughtily. Warm arms wrapped around him from behind and lips pressed into his hair above his ear. Severus rocked him slightly from side to side. If we have to have such an overblown demonstration of Christmas joy, at least it's respectable, he sniffed. Thanks for the compliment, Ron snorted. There's nothing on top. Severus's eyes flicked to the tip of the tree. No, Ron broke out of his arms. I was leaving it for you if you wanted. Severus laughed then. Why on earth would I want to adorn the top of this counterfeit tree with a fairy, and not even a real fairy at that? This is why you are a Slytherin, dear. Fairies don't like being captured and sentenced to a painful day on top of the tree. Ron winked at him. Don't you dear me. Severus poked him hard in the ribs. You know I do not celebrate Christmas. So if you want this tree up, then you are decorating it yourself. I thought you were only a miserable bastard at this time of year because you had nothing to be happy about, nobody to share it with. Ron picked up the aforementioned fairy. Severus looked at him, sensing the dangerously sad note hovering in Ron's tone. Ron, I love you very much, but that doesn't change years worth of ignoring the holiday the best I could. Maybe you could make an effort, Ron looked at the floor. If not for Christmas, then for what is technically our one-year anniversary, or do you not celebrate them either? He turned and plopped the fairy on top of the tree without further ceremony and headed for the kitchen. Miserable fucking bastard. Seriously, it's just fucking Christmas, and a tree. It's not as if I've done the front up in lights. Ron wasn't going to admit he'd toyed with the idea. He went to the cooker, giving the huge vat of mulled wine he had haphazardly made from his mother's instructions a stir. Bet it'll end up tasting like paint stripper. Never mind. Sounds like I'll need it to get through today if he's going to be fucking miserable all day. And we haven't even mentioned the healer visit yet. Ron frowned into the rippling scarlet liquid, the scent of cinnamon and cloves wafting up to him in the rich aroma. He had been dreading Christmas Eve for a whole week. The healers had scheduled the appointment to get it out of the way before the holidays, but it was clouding Ron's enjoyment of the impending festivities. If Severus's tests and assessments went well, the healers would consent to only monthly visits down from twice weekly. They wouldn't have been as willing to make such a big jump if Severus had not made such drastic improvements in September. I wonder how I can say, can you up the happy pill draft as a Christmas present, please? He growled at himself, knowing he was largely being unfair. Severus had adapted living to him far more successfully since his health had improved to the point where he could leave the flat, and his moods were fewer and farer in between, though he was still cantankerous, grumpy, and acidic on his best days. That's just Severus, though. That's the real him. Is that mulled wine? Severus's voice cut out from beside him and Ron jumped, lost in his thoughts. Yeah, thought I'd give it a go, Ron shrugged. Probably tastes like shit, though, so don't get your hopes up. I foul everything up the first time I try making it, as you well know after the Victoria sponge cake massacre. Severus ignored him and grabbed a spoon, dipping it into the simmering liquid and catching some on the metal. Ron stepped away to avoid seeing the look of horror on the man's face, 
when his tongue was melted or something equally disastrous. That's actually rather exquisite, Severus swallowed. Is it ready now? Ron smiled at the man's code for wanting some then and there. It's not even eight in the morning, he laughed, turning round to see him having another spoonful. Ah, but you should remember that it is always five o'clock somewhere. Severus winked but set the spoon down. I suppose it would not do to be drunk in front of the senior healers. No, Ron smirked. So really? It's good? Taste it yourself and find out, came back dryly with an eye roll. Ron did as instructed and was pleasantly surprised. Not sweet enough. He licked his lips free of the residue. He snatched a honey jar from the side and scooped in some more. I used to think that mulled wine was one of the only benefits to the festive season, Severus commented, leaning back on the worktop and folding his arms over his chest. Ron didn't comment, and kept stirring the honey through mixture. I suppose this year I really should have been more thoughtful in how I reacted to the holiday, Ron. I apologize. Don't. Ron smiled down at the pan, even though the apology meant more than he would ever let on. Severus moved and put light hands on Ron's waist, looking over his shoulder at the pan. I don't know what on earth I did to bless myself so lucky as to have you save me, you know. All right. Don't go bloody overboard, Ron snorted, again bursting with warmth on the inside. And I know I have repeatedly told you, Ron, that I am not a sentimental man. Told? Try bellowed, on several occasions. The red liquid received a smirk. And if you do not shut up and let me finish, I will hex you so that you have no choice. Severus squeezed his waist threateningly, and Ron obediently fell silent, though he couldn't wipe the smirk off his face. But I appreciate that you are very different to me. You have no reason to hate it as I have come to. I truly am sorry for not making more of an effort. I love you very much. Go and see what I have done to the fairy. Ron turned then, throwing him a curious glance, and Severus simply nodded in the direction of the living room, stepping up to continue stirring the wine when Ron ambled off. He walked closer to the tree and then burst out laughing. The fairy, who had been wearing a respectable gold dress when he had left, was now wearing a skimpy bikini in Gryffindor red and gold, with a teeny tiny Slytherin tie of green and silver around her neck. Very mature, Ron called back, still sniggering. I was going to turn her male, but then my nose caught whiff of the wine, and sadly I was distracted. And you say I've got the attention span of a garden gnome, Ron snorted. Well, I think she's perfect, and now the tree's bloody perfect too. You can stay if you're going to keep that up. Severus's laugh rumbled through the kitchen, and Ron found himself grinning like a lunatic at the warm sound. And it was warm deep and rich. That hadn't changed at all. Ron could remember the first few times he had heard the man laugh, and it sounded so alien. No, the only thing that had changed was the frequency that he was hearing the beautiful sound. So you're telling me I cannot, in fact, have some of this now? Severus called to him. The honey has only made me salivate further, I'm afraid. Do you want to be viciously ripped from my caring hands? Ron turned on his heel, and headed back to the kitchen. Gotta say, Severus, it'd really fuck up the holiday if you were, because you were pissed when the healers came to assess you. With an overdramatic huff, Severus stepped back from the hob and folded his arms across his chest. Fine, Weasley. Fine. After the meeting, you can get as pissed as you like, Ron offered. Though considering that we have to face company tomorrow, maybe not such a good idea. Severus's face darkened, and he suddenly remembered what he had just promised to try and restrain his more dour reactions to the holiday. That didn't mean, however, that he felt joyful about the fact that he had been roped into going to Ron's parents for Christmas lunch. It'll be fine, Ron smirked at him. I'm telling you, just eat, talk, be polite, and we'll be out of there before Mom gets herself a bit merry and starts asking when the wedding is. I want you to promise me that, Severus muttered grumpily, looking longingly at a box of homemade mince pies Molly had sent. Too much fat in the pastry for you, Ron declared. 
And so what? If she starts, I'll deal with it. You don't have to be so pessimistic about anything, Severus. So what? She thinks we should get married. I'd much rather have her banging on about that than I would her screaming about how we shouldn't be together. Severus had to admit that Ron had a point, so he sighed in conceding manner and gave a curt nod. Trust me. Godric's balls when she didn't want Bill to marry Fleur. You know, from our point of view, it was weird to watch, because he was Bill, you know? Bill who could do no wrong. Bill the sun shines out of my arse Weasley, and he chose a girl she thought was all wrong for him. I don't know how Fleur stood it, really. Mom was really rude to her. So what you're saying is that I should count my blessings that your mother appears to have accepted me with open arms? Severus crocked an eyebrow. Definitely, Ron laughed, nodding as he turned down the heat on the wine. It could have been a hell of a lot worse. Imagine the look Percy gives us. Like he is in the middle of a colonic irrigation, Severus smirked. Yes, quite. Well, if Mom disapproved, it's like that, but with an extra scowl. Bit like you, really. Maybe that's why she likes you. Let us not embellish the truth, Severus muttered sarcastically. I doubt any of your family truly like me, Ron. They merely tolerate me because they see I am good for you. George likes you, Ron turned to face him with a smile. Especially after you fixed his itching powder formula. Something I hope I do not live to regret, Severus laughed. He wouldn't dare prank you, not when he's got me to contend with. You are working this afternoon, aren't you? I don't want to, but business is through the roof, and he needs all hands on deck. I'd be a shit brother if I bailed on him now. I was not suggesting that you should. Severus put his hands on Ron's shoulders and tugged him closer for a warm kiss. Ron loved the taste of infused wine on Severus's lips. Somehow it tasted better than it had fresh and warm out of the pan. He ran his tongue over them gently. Mold wine tastes good on you, he murmured, burying his fingers deep into Severus's hair. I wish I could tell you that you were the first person to tell me that, Severus winked at him. Ron grinned at him. Well, I don't begrudge you, whoever it was. I should go and tidy up. He pulled away. But first, I think there's something you should see. Ron reached for the button of his jeans and popped it open, and lowered the zipper, wiggled his hips slightly to shift the denims down. I thought you might like them? Severus's face was full of disbelief and smirk as his eyes took in the bright, cheerful, Father Christmas patterned boxer shorts. And I bought a pair for you too. Ron looked up from beneath his fringe, just in case you felt like joining in the new tradition I've started. Now, Severus, remember, it's rude not to wear gifts. Some time later. Ron pulled back then and shot Severus another dazzling smile. There are two times when you look as close to divine as possible, Ron, Severus murmured. When you are in the middle of orgasm, and when you smile at me like that. I think those pants have done something to you, Ron raised an eyebrow with a smirk. The clock chimed on the mantelpiece, and he let out a groan. <sighs> Off to deal with the masses, then. Severus took Ron's face in his hands and kissed him. Come back to me. You've not said that in a long time, Ron looked at him in surprise. Every man needs a parting phrase for his lover, don't you think? What's mine? Ron frowned, trying to think. You have several, Severus kissed him. Each as gut-rotting as the next, but there we are. You have to have some faults, after all. Get. Ron jabbed him in the gut. Don't drink all my wine, Snape. I'm looking forward to it after I've dealt with said masses. He kissed Severus warmly, snaking his fingers to cup the base of his skull, and then pulled away, beaming as he stepped towards the fireplace. And he was gone. Very good reading. <laughs> wow, that was fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> there is so much to love about that. I also had never, like, hadn't occurred to me to pair these two up, but that's great. Yeah, the, the whole fic is really like that. I had to turn off my microphone and just cheese over here when <laughs> he was comparing the disapproval of Molly Weasley with Severus Snape. 
(laughs) (laughs) That is a comparison I've seen before and I love it. I actually think that they would make good friends for that reason. Just sign me up for new bro TP right there. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a fun art for this? Because I really want Snape in those underwears. (laughs) Not that I've seen. I, d- I did draw some some Snape slash Ron right after reading that fic, but I think they were just like in the kitchen together. <laughs> I have to admit, had to admit that when when you started reading the part where like Ron's dropping trow, I'm like, wait, we're reading this out loud? And oh, then- snap. <laughs> <laughs> you got me good. <laughs> well, but this is an explicit podcast. After all. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're, we're keeping it pretty clean. It does. It does get very spicy in the fic itself, though. There are nice. plenty of spicy parts. <laughs> oh yeah, I definitely encourage you to read it. It's it's very good. It sold me on the ship. Yes, yes, me too. I never had uh, never read any of this pairing, but it sounds good. Uh, I don't think from uh, from slash I ever went out of snary. Uh, and this is an interesting pair because I think Ron's personality is such an opposite to, to Snape. And it's nice mm-hmm. to to hear them just making jokes and, and still having fun together. And it's it's great. I think actually, and if you've read Snary, maybe you've read A Nick in Time. Yeah. yeah, like actually it was kind of Ron and Snape's friendship in that that made me even consider reading this because that let me see like, oh, they've got a good dynamic, really, when you think about it. So to see them as a ship, yeah. Yeah, and not too fluffy. Yeah. But yeah, it just they just really have kind of this interesting, uh, humorous and snarky and everything. Yeah. Well, and there are definitely emotional parts because like a big, I don't think I'm giving too much away by saying that a big element of this fic is that Ron and Hermione were supposed to get married and Hermione kind of left him at the altar. So he's processing these emotions. And I think, you know, that's that's another interesting element. Not that I don't like Ron and Hermione as a ship. I definitely write them as a ship, but it's fun to see that too. Now I'm just thinking of all the fics where it's the opposite where Ron leaves and Snape and Hermione oh, get that's together. True. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I've definitely read my fair share of Ron bashing. <laughs> and not as much Hermione bashing and I'm I'm into all of it <laughs> so yeah. yeah I mean you know at the end of the day it's it's all in aid of telling a story you know I can I can read a character I like get bashed and be like yeah in that moment because in the story it makes sense right exactly okay our next fic is a little bit a long one it's a snary and it's written by Dan Puff who who unfortunately couldn't join us very, very good story. And uh, we'll re- have her read a portion of it now that we've recorded ahead of time. I, I don't know how to say that right. Anyway, that yeah, we have good. the recording. We don't have her live. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. All right. The Christmas Prince by Dan Puff. Hello, this is Dan Puff. I'll be reading a bit from my fanfic, The Christmas Prince, a holiday scenario story. The average witch or wizard struggled to make any sense of Madame Puddifit's tea shop the night of December 1st. The normally cramped, chaotic shop was more cramped and chaotic than usual. Dozens of tables filled the space, two chairs apiece, each with a single lit candle and an empty vase for flowers. Red and green tinsel garland draped down the walls with fairy lights flitting between them. 
A few of the fairies escaped to investigate the mistletoe that wiggled enticingly overhead. Some even decorated the upper half of the large Christmas tree that was stuffed into the far corner. They avoided the lower half, as two of the tables were lodged into its branches. The tree trembled excitedly, causing several red and silver baubles to crash onto the tables, shattering wine glasses and knocking into faces and sending one shrieking witch into the lap of another's date. More baubles fell when one wizard tried to straighten the table. One was nearly caught by Madame Puddifer herself, but it bounced out of the palm of her hand and right into the horn of the gramophone, perched precariously on a half table beneath the window. It muffled the sound of Celestina Warbeck's classic, Dear Valentine, It's Christmas Time, which was a marked improvement in Harry Potter's opinion. So distracted by the commotion were Harry and his fellow diners that no one noticed the happenings near the shop's entrance. No one paid any mind to Severus Snape confunding Draco Malfoy, Harry's intended date, and the matchmakers, Lavender Brown and Pansy Parkinson. No one saw him pluck the red poinsettia, the twin to Harry's, from Draco's hand. No one saw the spell that rearranged the list of names and flowers that Lavender consulted. In fact, Harry paid no mind at all to Severus Snape until the man sank into the seat opposite him. No, Harry blurted out. Snape lifted one imperious brow. Lovely to see you as well, Mr. Potter. The red poinsettia joined Harry's own in the vase. Sorry, Harry said. A quick glance to the other tables sought red poinsettias on the chance of an awkward mix-up. Surely Snape hadn't been meant for him. Er, this is supposed to be, well, a date. Believe me, Potter, I am well aware of what this debacle professes itself to be, Snape replied testily. Er, sorry, Snape. Just... I mean, who would think to match us? The love experts you graduated with. Before Harry could snipe back, a harried Madame Puddifit arrived to take their orders. Sadly, she had no liquor to speak of, but she did keep them swimming in wine until their food arrived. Harry felt Snape watching him as he looked around the room once more. He half expected Fred or George to pop up and declare the whole evening an elaborate prank. Half hoped they would, really. Once their food arrived, Snape spoke up. I see why your friends put you up to this, Potter. You must be very lonely indeed if this is how you treat all of your dates. You're one to talk. You're here too. Which, while true, Snape had a point. Unwelcome guilt trickled in for how ungracious he had been so far. He might have apologized had Snape not opened his mouth again, tone dripping with scorn. Yes, but the first word out of my mouth was not no. In fact, I do recall saying how lovely it was to see you again sarcastically was it look you come on snape you know how you are oh do enlighten me harry was not being fair and he knew it and he hated that he knew it and couldn't or wouldn't stop it snape was always a bastard and had always been one whatever better qualities he had they did not erase this fact it was unfair of harry to not give him a chance but it was also unfair of Snape to pretend he didn't know just why Harry was so apprehensive about being set up with him. You, oh, forget it. Say it, Potter. I'm unpleasant. You dislike me. Whatever mild hopes you had for the night were dashed the moment you laid eyes on me. Snape's tone was blunt. There was a twitch in Harry's jaw. Shame churned in his gut as he fought to hold Snape's merciless eyes. Though one does expect better of our savior, Harry frowned here, prompting Snape to smirk. I've yet to insult you. 
though you are imbecilic enough, you may not notice when I do. Harry couldn't help but snort in amusement. Ah, there we are. You're still a right git, you know, Harry teased. The tension snapped beneath the unexpected humor. Your flirting leaves much to be desired. Harry rolled his eyes. What about you, then? You haven't been date-like. To Harry's surprise, Snape looked at him. Really looked at him. Dark eyes took their time exploring Harry, from the unruly tufts of hair to his cheekbones, lingering over his mouth. Harry's teeth worried at his lips in response, over his shoulders and down his arms, down to the fingers nervously drumming against the table, then in reverse, tracing their way back up to meet him. There was heat in that gaze, and Harry felt its touch like a caress, and he nearly shivered in response. You look very beautiful tonight, Snape said quietly. The sincerity in his tone was loud enough. Oh, Harry said. Warmth bloomed up his neck and face. His eyes fell away shyly without his permission, and he struggled to lift them once more. He half hoped to find mockery in that sharp, pale face, but found none. Harry could not put a name to what he saw, only that it wasn't the harsh or cruel or cold. Um, thank you. There is no need to thank me, Mr. Potter. He did not know why, but his face grew even hotter at this. Harry cleared his throat and picked up his fork. His thoughts were scattered, running off in the fruitless attempt at making sense of Severus Snape. Thankfully, the nice act did not survive the night. When Harry poked and prodded at his pasta, Snape barked at him to stop playing with his food. He made a snarky comment about Harry's festive holiday jumper. He critiqued the food where Madame Puddifoot could hear him. And whenever a person or pair approached with hopeful smiles, Snape ran them off with a well-placed sneer or snide remarks for the more daring. They bickered about both instances and fell into fuming silence. Then, to cap it all off, Snape insisted on paying for them both, as if it was a real date, and had the gall to snarl. I may not be a romantic expert, Harry, but I can afford a simple dinner for two at a tacky establishment. I didn't mean to imply you couldn't, Harry snapped. Still, as they left the warmth of the shop for the bitter cold of night, Harry knew it could have been worse. If Snape was rude to the other patrons, it had stopped strangers interrupting their meal. And if Snape had been stubborn and insistent, it had been kind of him to pay. And he had complimented Harry called him beautiful, of all things. And now he stepped closer before Harry could turn away. He stood tall and resolute, as though stealing himself for battle. May I walk you home? Why? Harry asked suspiciously. Proper date etiquette. It had to be a prank, all of this. The twins would spring up any moment now. If not them, then Snape had been taking lessons, and this was his brainchild. Harry scrutinized Snape for a moment feeling rather lost and hoping for a clue. Finally, he nodded, and they headed down the sidewalk, side by side. An oncoming group of witches brightened at the sight of Harry, mouths open in greeting, and Harry was not proud of the way he half-cringed back and leaned nearer Snape. Harry could not see the man's face, but he did watch as the women blanched and stumbled off the sidewalk and into the street, hastily passing them without a word. Harry snickered and playfully bumped his shoulder against Snape. I think I can see why they put us together, he joked. They knew I'd need a bodyguard. The man who defeated the Dark Lord hardly needs a bodyguard. I don't know. You spent a fair bit of time protecting me, didn't you? 
Harry pointed out. Snape inclined his head, but did not speak. They turned left onto Lionheart Lane. It was only a joke, really. Only, why do you think they paired us? A miserable prank on a miserable man, Snape muttered. Boy, Harry laughed. I thought I was beautiful. It was embarrassing to say, and even more embarrassing when Snape replied, You are. The man just looked at him. Harry kicked at a rock on the street. Hmm, a beautiful imbecile, is that it? What every man wants, I'm told. Sure seems that way sometimes. Good to know you're as shallow as the next bloke. Is that why you came, Mr. Potter? Did a sea of shallow fanboys leave you wanting more? Harry shrugged and kicked another rock. Loads of people are interested in, you know, the chosen one. It's almost a breath of fresh air when they care more about the pride of poetry than the war. But it always comes back to... Harry clammed up then and shoved his hands into his pockets. Years of experience with Snape taught him not to expect any sympathy. Not that he wanted sympathy precisely. It was not the lack of sympathy so much as the expectation of mockery. It is difficult to find a connection when others have prior expectations of you, Snape said after a pause. Yeah, that, Harry said, surprised to find his feelings so understood. Is, is that why you came tonight? Hesitation. Then, I came to stop Narcissa Malfoy haranguing me. Oh. Harry tried not to laugh. Maybe it was the idea of Snape having a friend. Or maybe the idea of Snape being bullied into a blind date. Neither was fair. Yeah, Ron and Hermione pushed me into it. Joke's on them. I made them come with me. He never did see who either had been paired with. He'd been more focused on trying to find out who his real date was. Well, this is me up here. His new home was a charming cottage in a row of charming cottages, all equipped with white picket fences and cheerfully colored doors. Perhaps Harry should not have shown a first date where he lived. But this was Snape. Whatever else Snape was, he could be trusted with Harry's safety and privacy. With this thought, Harry lingered by the fence and tapped his fingers against the white-painted wood. Tonight wasn't so bad, you know? I still wonder why. Do you know why they chose us? Really? Opposites attract. Do they? Harry peered up curiously as he asked, and his breath caught in his throat at the look on Snape's face. Snape shifted closer to him, and his eyes, those eyes, dropped down to his mouth, like he, like he might kiss him. Harry tensed, overly aware of their proximity, aware of the trembling, confused tension between them. They do. Harry's eyes briefly fell to Snape's mouth. The lips were thin and pale, well accustomed to frowning or sneering. Did they know how to kiss? He could not help but wonder, and mentally cursed Snape for putting that thought in his head. Right. Yes. All right. Um, good night, then. Before Harry could turn away, Snape spoke. I will be in Hogsmeade tomorrow. Chaperoning. If you would care to meet for lunch. Oh. Um, Harry gaped like a fish. He could feel it. And he was very aware of how ridiculous he looked. But he couldn't fix it yet. He couldn't fix it because it sounded like Snape had asked him out. And that was not possible. Only he watched Snape's face, how it twisted with irritation, and what might have been disappointment. Snape turned away from him before Harry could really look. Good night, Mr. Potter. Harry must have lost his mind when he blurted out, Noon, three broomsticks. Snape looked over his shoulder at him. Harry nervously ruffled his hair. 
Snape nodded sharply before sweeping away into the darkness. What the hell am I doing? Harry muttered to himself. Neither Ron nor Hermione owled or flewed Harry the next day, so he could only assume their own dates had gone poorly. Or spectacularly, Harry thought bitterly. Curious as he was about who they had been paired with and how things had gone, he had no desire to relay the events of his own evening. It still puzzled him why Snape, of all people, had been chosen as his date. More puzzled still that Snape had actually treated it as a date. Lavender and Pansy took the subject of love very seriously. They would not risk their new business venture on a prank. They might take a risk on love itself, but what had they seen that made them think there was hope for love here? Had they seen Harry and Snape's animosity back at Hogwarts? Snape, on the other hand, was a Slytherin. He could have arranged their meeting somehow. But why? For revenge? For a laugh? It was one reason among many to cancel their plans. But at five past noon, he walked into the three broomsticks. Whatever was going on, Harry wanted to get to the bottom of it, even if it meant playing along. You're late, Potter, Snape said waspishly. Yeah, uh, sorry, Harry said as he shrugged out of his coat. The warming charms in the pub made even his jumper quite stuffy. Do you have an endless supply of those? Snape eyed his jumper. Today's was navy blue with a grinning snowman in its center. Every few minutes it winked or shivered or performed a jig. One for every day of the month, Harry replied cheerfully. Truth be told, he had worn this solely because of the comments Snape had made the night before. The flying reindeer pattern hadn't been that bad, had it? <clears throat> what? You don't think it's beautiful? Harry joked. You are beautiful. Your fashion sense is not. That tripped Harry up. He had not expected Snape to stick to what he had said. He could almost think the man meant it. Harry ruffled his hair. He knew it was sticking up in all directions, just like it always did. He knew he was short and scrawny, and that he still wore his unfashionable round glasses. His looks had never been what attracted people to him. The idea of someone caring about something other than his name, even if it was his looks. Madame Rosmerta bustled over to take their orders. Per request, she rattled off an extensive list of holiday specials. Harry chose the gingerbread butterbeer and only remembered to tack actual food onto his order when Snape ordered a gilly water and a sandwich. Children are easily distracted by sugar, I've noticed, Snape commented. The tone was dry, but Harry sensed his amusement. Shut it, Harry laughed. Snape said nothing more, but let his gaze travel around the pub, then out of the window and into the streets, keeping an eye on students, probably. Harry squirmed and boredly tapped his fingers on the edge of the table. It was a relief to not have Snape's attention on him, but at the same time, well, Snape had asked him here. The least they could do was talk or something. Once their drinks arrived, Harry spoke up. This is awkward. Yes, I know, Snape snapped. Why did you invite me? I'm a glutton for punishment. This was confusing. There were moments when there seemed to be something there. Something warm and interested. There were moments like these when Snape was cold and snarky and looking at Harry like dirt on his shoe. Harry wasn't sure why this bothered him as much as it did. Instead of responding, he slumped in his seat and slurped noisily at his butterbeer. He could feel Snape glaring at him, but he kept his own gaze on the window, though he paid little attention to the passers-by or the festive decorations. 
He only knew the buzzing in his ears and the jangling of his nerves and the internal chanting of, why, why, why? Why did you accept my invitation? Snape asked. Harry shrugged, but did not look at him. Dunno. Someone thought we were a good idea. But not you. Well, you did call me beautiful, Harry quipped. And you did scare off my fans. It might have been the best date I ever had. Which was, sadly, true. His experiences thus far had been an ill-advised date with Cho Chang, several uncomfortable dates with admirers, and a short-lived relationship with Michael Corner. Nothing serious. No deep connection. Nothing at all like last night, however strange it had been. That is likely the most pathetic comment I've heard from you yet, Snape said. Harry frowned into his butterbeer. It was not a nice thing to say, but Harry had to agree. It was a bit pathetic. Harry swiped his finger through the whipped cream in his drink and popped the finger into his mouth. He did not think about what he was doing until he caught Snape watching him. There was a flare of heat in those dark eyes, and his stomach fluttered in response. Harry grinned sheepishly as he pulled his finger free. I can't have been bad company, can I? Harry ventured. You did ask me out again. This is a date, isn't it? He couldn't quite ask. Fishing for compliments. Sort of have to with you, don't I? You do not. I complimented you last night unprovoked. Harry smiled. It was a soft, shy smile. He knew it was, and he hated it. Nothing sly or seductive or smooth. Just more evidence of how silly he was. Because Harry thought of Snape calling him beautiful again, and... Well, it was just nice, wasn't it? It was nice. Even if he didn't quite believe it. Their sandwiches were delivered then, and Harry found himself glancing frequently at Snape as the man dug into his sandwich. In fact, he got the feeling that Snape was purposefully not looking at him now. Was he embarrassed, maybe? Harry picked at his own sandwich. This lunch was providing more questions than answers thus far. Daringly, Harry nudged Snape's foot beneath the table and waited for the man to look up at him. I think you were a better date than I was. I never complimented you once, did I? Snape was so hard to read. He stared unflinchingly at Harry. Was it his imagination? Or was the man stiffer than he had been? Colder? If this was a date, if he was interested in Harry, was he worried? Knowing Snape's history with Harry's father and godfather, did Snape expect Harry to mock him? In his panic, the words fell out of his mouth. I always thought the prince was clever, you know. Harry dropped his hands into his lap to surreptitiously wipe his sweaty hands on his trousers. And funny and... and bloody brilliant. He stared down at his sandwich. That sounded pathetic, didn't it? Even now, all these years later, he was still obsessed with that bloody book. And it was so impersonal, wasn't it? To speak of the prince rather than Snape himself. Then, well, after, your memories. And, well, you've heard me. Harry's face was so hot. One could cook an egg on it. Embarrassing. You, you're brave and strong. Probably the strongest person I know. And, and good. Deep down, at least. He tried for a teasing smile, but Snape only stared at him. Still with that indecipherable look, he let his smile fall away and he cleared his throat. <clears> there <throat> then. That's better than beautiful, isn't it? Is this a competition, Potter? Call me Harry. Very well. Is this a competition? Harry. Harry's mouth twitched. I like the way you say my name. 
Is that so? I like the way you say everything. My, my. You really are determined to win. Harry laughed nervously. <laughs> you should step up your game, sir. I suppose you may call me Severus, as you are not without your charms. Harry smiled properly. Severus. Conversation became more natural then, and Harry didn't have to think so much. Severus told him the story of how he'd been roped into chaperoning that day, or part of the story, as Harry would find out years later that Septimus Vector had begged Severus to take her duty only after Severus manipulated her into doing so. It was quite the Slytherin scheme, pulling its strings, all to avoid outright volunteering for the job, all for an excuse to see Harry. Harry would, at that point, find the tale very hilarious and romantic, but was now only a bit amused by what he heard. Severus spoke with relish of how easily students were kept in line when they feared him, and how he fully expected them to behave today, though he admitted he would be glad for opportunities to punish them. The whole confession, while mildly irksome, prompted eruptions of laughter from Harry, who did his best to muffle the sound on principle not to mention his annoyance and flattery at the fan Severus warded off, seemingly without realizing he was doing it. Harry watched yet another young student wander off in a fret as Severus waxed poetic about detention. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch, Harry sang quietly. The reference required an explanation that Harry awkwardly gave, which in turn led to Harry catching Severus up on his own life. Everyone knew he was seeking for pride of poetry, and while they all knew of his recent move to Hogsmeade, no one knew about his break from the team, or his current plans to help open the new branch of Weasley's Wizard Wheezes, and the odd job here and there, helping with holiday events in the village. Does pride of poetry not pay you enough? Severus asked. They pay fine, Harry said uncomfortably. Only, I won't seek forever, you know. I love it, but it's not meaningful work. Being an or that had meaning, but you were right. I had seen too much violence as it was. I don't want to fight for the rest of my life. There was a flash of surprise in Severus's eyes, and Harry blushed. Upon learning that Harry had joined the Auror Corps without setting his newts, within weeks of the war's end, Severus had torn into him, while convalescing at St. Mungo's, no less. Harry had been furious at the time and had stayed with the Aurors for over a year and a half before calling it quits. However rude Severus had been, he had been right. Equally as impactful had been the Prophet's announcement of his departure. War hero. Hero no more. It had stung, and even now Harry was torn about it. His whole purpose had been to play the hero. While he did not want that to be his life, he also did not know what his life was without it. As much as he loved Quidditch, he felt adrift. There was an impermanence about his place on the team, like he was wasting his time and his talents on a hobby rather than anything worthwhile. Just, Harry continued, after everything I'd done, everything else seemed so tame and useless. Severus snorted. I think you've been useful enough for one lifetime. I guess. However, if you wish to be useful, you may assist me in wrangling the fiends running about the village. Severus. Are you pawning off chaperone duties on me? They squabbled over the bill again. Harry thought it only fair to take his turn paying, but Severus would not hear of it. They sat in tense silence while Madame Rosemurdo went to fetch his change. In the silence, confusion and panic set in. Was this an actual date? 
Had he been flirting with Snape? Had he confided in him just now, in things he had only ever shared with his closest friends? Harry bundled into his coat, gloves, and scarf before they left, and it might have been those items offering warmth as they trekked through the brisk breeze, but it might have been how closely Severus walked alongside him, and how aware Harry was of his every move. His heart gave a cheerful kick when Severus's fingers brushed his. So, what do we do then? Harry asked. Stop them snogging and vandalizing and such. Any rule-breaking, any merry-making, Severus agreed. Harry laughed and called him the Grinch again. Then imagined Severus in lurid, avocado-green robes and laughed all over again. He hummed the tune to, You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. While Severus dealt with braver fans, a group of bold Gryffindors drawn to one of their own. The tongue lashing chased them halfway down the street. Harry did his best to look disapproving, to tramp down on the fond amusement. Honestly, it was nice not to have to deal with fans. And truth be told, from Harry's experience, Severus could have been a lot meaner than he was. Look, Severus, Harry said, digging his elbow playfully into Severus's ribs. They're having fun. How many points is that worth, do you think? Hmm. Ten points to Ravenclaw from Ravenclaw. They received curious glances from the excited students and busy shoppers. With no displays of affection to scandalize them, they carried on with their errands, leaving Harry and Severus to one another's company. Severus spent more time inventing cruel punishments than he spent delivering them and Harry did his best to steal the man's attention away from harmless misbehavior. By the time Harry made his way home, whistling to himself, he wondered at the fact that he'd had so much fun with Severus Snape. On Monday, Harry was busy with the new storefront. Fred and George were hustling to have it fully ready to open within a week or two, just in time for last-minute holiday shoppers. It was only by the end of the day that the twins found time to tease him. Heard you had a date with Snape. It must have been Parkinson's idea, George chortled. She would find that funny. So how was it then? Well, Snape is... er... he's Snape still, Harry said lamely. Well, not an actual lie. It was misleading. Because he knew what the twins were asking, and the implication was not the full truth. Severus was not different in any way Harry could name, other than the odd flirtation. And he certainly wasn't about to explain that. Not to anyone least of all the twins. Tuesday, after work, Harry had more time to consider his situation and to wonder, hopefully, fearfully, whether Snape would ask him out again. He pushed these questions aside when he met Ron and Hermione at the Three Broomsticks, only for his friends to pry for details. And we er, met up for lunch on Sunday, too, Harry confessed. Ron openly gaped while Hermione frowned. Uh, if if maybe he's up to something, Harry suggested. Oh, Harry, cautioned Hermione. Don't let him play with you. Just leave it be, all right? Which was sound advice, of course. Harry might trust Snape with his life, but with his heart, what a laugh. Friendship? Did he trust Snape not to make a fool of him? But then Harry never found reason to heed sound advice. On Wednesday evening, he walked into Neville's tree lot and was pleasantly surprised to find Severus there. There was a large red and green sleigh pulled by winged horses parked in the road, and Haggard was doing his best to fit several large trees onto it, while Severus watched from the shadows. Hello, Hagrid, 
Harry greeted and suffered through a rib-cracking hug. Harry winced and rubbed his abused ribs as he walked towards the shadows. Are you stalking me, Severus? I'm here on Hogwarts business, Severus casually explained with a nod to the sleigh, which he was definitely not helping with. And you happen to be here today. After I told you my plans, Harry pointed out, you do not own the rights to Wednesday night tree shopping, Potter. Call me Harry. Pest. Harry. Hindrance. Harry. Harry. Harry grinned. There you go. The tree lot was cheerfully lit by floating white orbs that, upon closer inspection, resembled snow globes. Snow swirled within the orbs as they rolled through the air, casting their soft glow over the area. Red and white ropes surrounded the lot and divided it into sections. A steady stream of customers roamed around, geared up for the holidays. The festive air fed into Harry's own high spirits. He rubbed his hands and looked around for his friend. Hey, Neville, is this all yours? Oh, Neville turned and surprised and, brief and appeared briefly happy to see Harry, which quickly turned into anxiety when his eyes landed on Severus. Sorry, um... You said, oh, um, yes, these are mine. Um, hello, Professor Longbottom, Severus said coldly. He eyed the trees around them disdainfully, but since he kept his ruder comments to himself, Harry only snickered and elbowed him. Neville gulped and continued to stare fearfully at Severus. Behind them, Hagrid re-entered the lot, humming his carols. Harry would have liked to follow Hagrid around. He could catch up with his old friend and see what sorts of trees he would bring with him to Hogwarts. Instead, Harry stuffed his hands into his pockets to stifle the urge to touch his companion and peered up at him with a small smile. Severus looked down at him, and the look in his eyes was not cold or disdainful. In fact, it chased the lingering chill from Harry's skin, like a warm stroke down his spine. You're helping me, yeah? Harry asked. Severus gave a put-upon sigh followed Harry without hesitation into the sea of trees. He made no rude remarks about the childish glee with which Harry ran from tree to tree. He made no critiques about the holiday sweater, ivory, with stripes of green trees, Harry exposed by unzipping his coat to counter the warming charms. He had nothing nasty to say to Harry at all, which Harry half expected to hear all night. It was nice for a bit, even with the silence between them. It was not quite comfortable, but a pleasant sort of awkwardness, a different tension that normally existed between them. Harry was free to admire the trees, extra choosy of which would be the first in his new home. Harry was in such a good mood, he didn't mind the occasional interruptions. He waved to and greeted familiar faces, and offered smiles and nods to the unfamiliar. Severus was less forgiving of any interruptions. One mother carried her crying daughter away. Harry refused to look at him. Right, Prince Charming, you are. They continued their path onward, though the air between them was particularly icy. Do you have to be so rude? Rude is interrupting a stranger's evening with trivial requests, Severus drawled. I set boundaries. Rudely? That is an integral part of my personality, I'm afraid. Severus grabbed hold of Harry's arm, and as Harry moved forward, the motion swung him back around. Severus grabbed hold of Harry's other arm to steady him. I am not a nice man, Mr. Potter. I do not have spare smiles for the masses, and I do not store rainbows and sunshine in my back pocket. 
I certainly have no desire to see you bombarded by the demands of your adoring audience. Certainly not, when I've already laid claim to your time. Severus glared down at him, and Harry glared right back. He was not so easily cowed by this man. The hands on his arms tightened, then dropped away, as though Severus did not trust himself to touch Harry while so incensed. There are a great number of things I will do for you, Harry. Becoming your Prince Charming is not one of them. Harry breathed out steadily. No, you were always more of a warrior, Prince, anyway. He turned and continued the path they had been on. After a few seconds, Severus followed after him, but stayed half a step behind, watching him. Harry could feel the weight of that stare on the back of his neck. The war's over, you know. You... You don't have to be on the offensive all the time. Severus said nothing, but that was fine for Harry. It was difficult to reconcile all of the good Severus had done when he was so touchy with others. It made Harry feel guilty for nearly liking him. The way Severus had phrased it, as though he were protecting Harry rather than lashing out without cause, that gave him pause. Unless it was some ploy to win his affections, or an excuse for his bad behavior. Maybe Hermione was right. Maybe this was a bad idea. A worse idea sprang to mind when he saw movement out of the corner of his eye. Look! Harry grabbed Severus's arm and tugged him back. To their left was a roped-off section where a bit of greenery repeatedly ran itself into an invisible wall. Other bits of greenery hovered behind it, watching. Oh, I know what that is. Harry walked towards the red-roped area for a closer look. Yes, those were sprigs of mistletoe. Come here, Severus. The invisible wall gave way when Harry stepped forward. It was a ward to keep wayward greenery at bay and not potential customers. The space was filled with displays of natural decorations. Garland, wreaths, flowers, pine cones, and even fruit. Sprigs of holly and mistletoe bobbed overhead, unable to fly past the invisible ceiling. The holly gathered in one corner, twitching now and again. The mistletoe chased each other around, some even drooping down to examine the other plants. When Harry entered, a few flew over to investigate him. They all froze when Severus entered. Harry calmly turned to face him, as Severus hesitated over the threshold. They're matchmaking mistletoe, Harry explained, when Severus finally stepped forward. They sort of gravitate towards people who are attracted to each other, or who would be compatible. He did not look away from Severus and Severus did not look away from him. Severus strode forward, slowly but surely, and the mistletoe sprang into action. Overhead, a line formed, stretching between the spot over Harry's head and the spot over Severus's. The line grew shorter and fatter the closer Severus got, until all of the mistletoe were clustered over them both, and Severus stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. Harry swallowed. He didn't know if he was shocked or relieved or frightened, all three, maybe, and maybe more. Severus studied him closely. I didn't know if you, if you were just playing with me or... Harry began, but the words faded away when Severus shifted closer. Their robes brushed. Severus's fingers were cool where they cradled his chin, as was the thumb that brushed gently across his lips. Harry's breath faltered. His lips parted. His eyes closed against a sudden wave of dizziness. Then, Severus's breath was hot on his face and hot on his mouth when the thumb fell away to be replaced by lips. 
It was barely a kiss. So soft was it, and Harry's lips tickled with need for more. Their shared air fogged his brain. You do want me, he whispered. This time, Severus kissed him properly. Careful pressure, soft caress. Harry gripped Severus's arms to stay steady, and Severus aided this effort by sliding his arms around Harry's waist. The tenderness was the worst of it. He felt, he felt. It was too much, too confusing. It was a relief when Severus deepened the kiss. When he pulled Harry closer, still too slow, too steady, screamed too much into the silence. The wordless confession rang in Harry's ears. Then, suddenly, the lot glowed red, then green. The invisible dome was made visible by the flashing lights, and bells rang out to mark the hour. Severus's teeth caught Harry's parting lips, and Harry shivered. Severus moved his hands to Harry's hips as Harry fixed his lopsided glasses and patted uselessly at his wild hair. Severus stared at Harry's mouth and leaned in to kiss at him again as Harry laughed. He placed his hands on Severus's chest and reluctantly pushed him back. Closing time. Harry's voice trembled a bit as he spoke. Never did get my tree. We'll have to come back. And that's all I'll be reading for now, but you can finish reading the rest of the story on AO3. Which reminds me, we'll have links to all the stories on snapchatpodcast.com. Oh my gosh, that was so good. Yeah. <laughs> I have notes. <laughs> I'm definitely going to have to go and read the rest of that. Me too. Wow. It's good. Yeah. There was a point early on with, oh, tell us about Dan Puff first. Dan Puff is such a good writer. Most of the time she writes kind of angsty stuff, but uh, this was kind of a, a fun little piece. There was a part pretty early where it said Snape looked at him, really looked at him, and you could just feel the intensity dripping out of that text. Yes. And Snape schooling Harry on date etiquette. That is some <laughs> choice content right there. <laughs> Harry got him with a little bit of footsie under the table. That was a detail mm -hmm. that I was like, footsie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, glaring and then glaring back. It's like one of my favorite Snape date pastimes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Snarking at each other and then just glaring at each other. And then somebody breaks mm -hmm. and it's great. Last note I made was about mistletoe. Because, oh man, once we started listening about mistletoe, I was like, oh, I think I've read like a ton of holiday fix with enchanted mistletoe. It's one of those old tropes where they're like forced to share a kiss and there's that forced bonding. That is mm -hmm. such a delicious trope. I love forced bonding. <laughs> Same. I like the awkwardness of the first date, which is makes it worse that they know each other. And they're like, okay, this is a new situation. What the hell do we do with each other? Like, <laughs> it's just so good to read. <laughs> yeah, I love I love first dates where it's like they know each other out of that context. And now it's like, we're on a date. This is weird. <laughs> I haven't read a whole lot of Snary, but it usually seemed like it would be Harry pursuing Snape. Is that more common, would you think? Or that just I think that's more common, but the few where Snape is pursuing Harry and he's real either like shy or like devious about it, I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, like this. That question comes up in Snemini as well, and it might have something to do with that power imbalance that 
he is the adult, he is the former teacher or current teacher, depending on the fic. And so in both Snary and Sminey, we have a whole lot of trying to flip that power imbalance and make the younger one the pursuer. So I think, yeah, it's way more common. And, and it's such a treat to see one where Snape is the one actually pursuing. I can think of a few really good ones. I think it's called Courting Disaster by Snary Five Ever, where Snape is secretly courting Harry. That one was a lot of fun. Nice. <laughs> okay, I'm writing that one down already. <laughs> Highly recommend. Yeah, I, I will have links to all stories mentioned. Yeah, I'm always waiting for to finding a, a fake bit. First of all, I'm a, a big uh, Hermione Snape fan, uh, and one where it's Snape's perspective of their dating, whether if it's during Hogwarts time or, or after. But yeah, the the ones, uh, whether it's Snary or 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 with Hermione, where uh, he's the one initiating a relationship. It's so rare, and I'm I'm just waiting to to find a really good one. But I understand that the power balance can be very bad in some circumstances, especially if it's during Hogwarts. So I think the ones I have read were always post-Hogwarts or in an alternate universe. It's a comment that I get a lot on my Fic Fridays. I'm in love because in that one he like realizes it first and gives her lots of space to like say yes or no and and figure it out and she's been through a lot of trauma and stuff so but yeah that that's something that I it's it's such a interesting like phenomenon that that's the way it usually goes that even the commenters on my fic where it's it's not even so much he's pursuing her but just giving her space to figure it out like that's rare enough that I'm getting comments yeah. on it so yeah check my bookmarks because I might have more <laughs> I, I think those are um, overrepresented in my bookmarks where Snape's the one who figures it out first and does yeah. the pursuing. I mean, it's fan fiction too. Sometimes it's fun if it's more problematic. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, and I think the fact that Snape didn't have a lot of good experiences with, well, not only with the other, but depending on, on who he's into, with, uh, with love interest, I think that also makes him not really want to pursue people because just thinking that, okay, this will go down bad anyways so why would i spend my time doing this right let's hope that he will get happy anyway <laughs> <laughs> and i do love a good inexperienced or even virgin snape yeah. being pursued and he just can't believe it's happening <laughs> just like leave me alone i'm fine being alone i'm used to it you know uh snape and sex is like twice as listened to as anything else at this point oh wow oh it unseated <laughs> the rick mania episode <laughs> yeah. gonna gonna have to do a part two maybe i've actually thought of several fix that like since you put out the call for for a fix for that i've thought of like several that i'm like oh i should have i should have recommended this one okay well yeah just let me know and you know i will put them in a place and we can uh yeah maybe revisit that Ooh. Well, I think there is a lot of room to go deeper on individual like tropes. Yes. I think there were plans in the works for a BDSM episode. And... Oh, oh, I've yeah. got a fig for that. Like... Okay. <laughs> Great. Yeah. I think we could come up with a lot more content for Stephen Sex, just saying. <laughs> you know, it really wasn't even that explicit, was it? No. Not until I started reading my fic. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, I mean, maybe once. Well, I can remember a Zygodinus interview. She read something that was a bit explicit, but otherwise it's, you know, been fairly clean, really. It just turned out that way. I don't really have any 
feelings either way. But uh, yeah. Well, the next story is Snape and Tonks. It's another fairly rare pair. We have this excellent author, Marshmallow McGonagall, who's read for us before. And here she reads her story, Finding Shadows. Hi, I'm Marshmallow McGonagall. Uh, this is my fic, Finding Shadows. Snow and ice crunching beneath her boots. Tonks ran up a flight of stairs through pools of orange light from street lamps. At a brisk walk, a few steps jogged, turning around and taking a step back. Eyes screwed up at the flurry of snow, but not looking away. Curious looks from passers-by ignored. She tugged her cloak back around herself. Winter was gloating like a curse, which had finally found the weak spot in her shield. The cold creeping around her, where a leap and tumble had rucked up the long layers meant to keep her warm. People with armfuls of shopping bags were gathered around a bus stop. An ambulance with sirens blaring raced past, the sludge from the roads splashing up onto the pavement. At darting around, she searched for signs of the river, but she was still stuck in the weeds of office buildings and department stores. Tonk swore and glanced up at the tall buildings surrounding her. She didn't mind heights. She enjoyed flying. She just lacked fondness for apparating when the supposed landing site had issues with existing. Ducking behind a delivery lorry and into a doorway with a broken light above it, she disapparated. She landed with wand half-twisted, ready to disapparate from a fall. The sun taken for the night, the sharp grasp of darkness unrelenting. Constellations of street lamps and cars lit up the world. Office windows, shop displays, the council Christmas lights, the edge a few feet away. Rising slowly, traffic trundling past, wondering if her world is about to fall out from underneath her boots. Untouched snow scrunching with each step, searching for the water snaking through the city. Careful steps past large pipes like steel seedlings searching for the light, giving the whirring fans a wide berth. Then the city granted her sight of the mercurial lifeblood glistening with its own magic. Quiet power which was contained by little more than sidelong glances of architecture glibly reinforced over the centuries. The bridges lay across the river like the cords on the spine of a book, some harshly lit like motorways and others which might have had candles within the globes of the lamps for all they illuminated. And she knew where to go. Another twist of her wand and she was in a close. The buildings either side towering up so the night sky was but a sliver. Her elbows almost bumped off the walls, decorated with dense graffiti. Cloak held snug about her. She made her way across slippery cobblestones to the road. The storm appeared to have taken sympathy on the shoppers and partygoers. Whether tired and losing energy or uninterested in moving on to new pastures, the blizzard had all but ceased. The city lights and clouds, heavy with snow, left the sky looking like one painted and left forgotten in storage. Buses, cars, cyclists, pedestrians. The noise wasn't him, but she knew this was the way. A group of friends held on to each other and laughed their way past her, stumbling and shouting with ecstasy, Santa hats askew, shrieking at an unknown joy. A woman trying to corral several children while laden with shopping bags told a child to hush when they pointed at Tonks and said, Which? Costume party, said Tonks with an apologetic smile. The woman laughed and gave her own apologies before muttering about Halloween being long past and young people these days. The bridge still a little way ahead, Tonks saw the neon sign for a chip shop and went inside, slipping her wand away before the door closed behind her. The man behind the counter could have been Santa Claus, if Santa had forgone the red suit for a t-shirt and apron, which may have once been white. Clapping a large, callous hand to his mouth, the man then slapped the register and gave a booming laugh which could have turned a candle flame into a bonfire. Well, lass, he said, everyone complains about Halloween coming early, and here you are, almost two months late. You know what they say about witches, said Tonks, wanting to let him tell her how deep the water was, rather than jump in and find out the hard way. The hard way had a tendency of leaving worse bruises. Aye. The man's features softened. McGranny used to tell some right tales. He looked Tonks up and down. Alice said to treat a witch with kindness, for she'd be the one to help in times of darkness. 
Tonks smiled for a small laugh falling into a sigh. The man's eyes crinkled, a twinkle of magic in his eyes as he watched her gaze travel over the many boards which hung above the counter. What can I do for you, lass? Bag of chips. Rummaging through the pockets of her robes, she felt around for the pouch which held muggle money and stifled a wince. Despite the offer of a meal at Grimaud Place and invitations back to the hog's head, all she wanted was post-mission food. Just chips. She nodded as a paper bag rustled and the scoop clanged when it's plunged into the tray of chips. On the small television mounted in the back corner of the shop, the news showed emergency services picking through a destroyed building. Biting her tongue, she went back through her pockets. She might not be able to do a three-course meal at a restaurant, but she had the money for chips. The bag twirled in practice hands, no chips fell out, and the corners were twisted to a close. The man pushed the bag of chips across the counter. On the house, lass. Tonks gave an empty laugh, hands still in her pockets, and chewed her lip. Consider it my kindness to do it, she looks like she's got her own darkness. Fire barely smouldering in the bedroom, shortcuts through the ministry, choosing where to run. Home left behind, juggling duties, snap decisions. Each darkness different, its own battlefield to traverse. One place shared only with him. One place she wanted to find her way back to. Tonks walked up to the counter and picked up the bag of chips. I'd like to have met your granny. The man's chuckle embraced Tonks with warmth. Thank you. You're welcome, lass. Farewell, shared Tonks left. One back in hand, she tried to remember her mother's exasperated instructions. A couple of quick spells and the signs outside the chip shop were roughly polished. The sandwich board swung more easily and the windows passed her clean. She was hidden away in her cloak and saw the man approach the doorway when a group of people debating orders between themselves went inside and he could only glance back before making his way behind the counter. Cobble and asphalt competed to lead the way towards iron railings and granite piers. Traffic lights ignored and heeded. Crowds surged and dissipated along the road. Shoppers bustling in and out of doors. Christmas music flooded into the waves of tyres, exhausts, horns. The world seemed to darken as she approached the bridge, as if the crossing was trying to hide itself from the busy city. Other stretches of metal and stone busier, the lamps between the piers glowed more like fireflies than the torches which flanked other routes across the water. Near the middle of the bridge, there were a series of three unlit lamps between two granite sentinels. Not total darkness, but a different light. Out of habit, she looked both ways before crossing the empty road. The shadows hugged one of the pillars and she glanced at it before leaning against the intricately wrought iron railings, her back to the water. She opened the still warm bag of chips, the rustle of paper strangely loud, and held them out to the darkness beside her. Got them from Santa Claus? Snape's low laugh was another kind of heat altogether. And when he turned to look at her, she caught his smile before his attention was back on the river. Hooded head hung over his arms on the railings. His cloak was disguise enough, a rippling of heavy black cloth which people could look past all too easily, not wanting to believe the shadows held secrets. The lights were already on. He cleared his throat. Wouldn't want the Ministry to suspect me of illegal activities. This part of the Ministry still has blood on her boots. He took a chip out of the bag and held it under the hood. His breath was warm against her hand and he ate the chip from her fingers. A comfortable silence wrapped around them as she fed him chips and ate some herself. Boats passed beneath the bridge and a black taxi drove past. The handful of pedestrians stuck to the other side to avoid the darker path. Empty paper bag vanished, fingers wiped on her robes. She nudged his boot with hers. The blood. Is it yours or someone else's? You laugh. I couldn't listen to Black any longer. He isn't coping with Remus being away. Snape murmured his agreement. No excuse but a reason writ across serious and jagged worry. Every time Remus returned on his sporadic visits from werewolf colonies, he looked more gaunt, and there was so little of him to begin with. Sirius spent most nights trying not to sleep in case Remus wasn't there when he woke up. Hours of back and forth, everyone tired, angry, frustrated. Backhanders and wands drawn, the dregs of the day fueling the febrile nature of the fight, while everything was illuminated by the Ministry's persistence in maintaining the facade of peacetime. Snape's hands slid to the iron railing, and he stood up. 
You fancy to wander around the city? So much of him still in darkness, she let her gaze drift back to the other side of the bridge, where a lamp set up the industrial ironwork spiderwebs laced between the granite piers. Only because I couldn't remember where the river was when I left. It didn't occur to you to ask someone? Despite the suggestion in his tone, she could hear the smile in his voice too. Order, she reminded him. Questions are for afterwards. Merlin, he muttered. Which means I apparated to the top of. She turned and pointed to a high rise lit up like a Christmas tree. That building to get a better view, then it was a case of picking a bridge. So what question do you have for me? Tonks shook her head. Turning her back to the open road, she stepped closer and slipped her hand beneath his cloak. Her arm around his body, she swallowed the wince as she pressed herself against him and he put his arms around her. Wand at her side, his wand against her back, meeting his dark gaze properly for the first time in hours. He searched her eyes, tightened his hold, rested his head against hers, breathing in the cold air, sharp reminders of the season. A sharp twist of her wrist, she turned and disapparated with him, knowing the ground would be uneven, knowing pain was already searing. Feet hitting the ground, sagging in his arms, a stifled whine of pain. He caught her before she could hit the ground. In the clearing, the crescent moon barely enough to see him by. Her fingers sought the space between the buttons and the thick cloth in her hand, and she held on. Finding her footing while excited pain discovered more crumbling defences, she rested her head on his shoulder. Winter winds rolled across mountains, an ancient woodland flanking Hogsmeade, the chill heightened by curious constellations with no time for clouds and snowfall. Then there were his gentle fingers slipping beneath perfected layers of protection from long days and nights of being at Moody and Kingsley's beck and call. Small circles and the small of her back, she moaned and he pressed his lips to her neck. You forget that I know how much sleep you had last night. A different kind of safety in bed with him, one which was entirely its own. Not like that of curling up with Savage, dozing with Remus, catnapping with Charlie. A kind of safety which fought against everything she'd learned in becoming an owner. Letting her guard down, letting him in, letting there be something beyond the moment. He stroked her back and murmured her name. Long day, she admitted, just as a silver gust of light barreled towards them and took the form of a bear. Office, rumbled Moody's voice. Tonks drew in a deep breath, pulled away and found the reserves always there for work, for clawing her way out of tiredness and preparing for another fight. The bear disappeared into the night, taking with it the light which illuminated Snape's dark gaze. I take it, he said. I shall have to wait before I hear your question. She stepped out of his embrace and turned the carved round handle in her hand. The wood warm from being against her body, she rubbed her thumb across the chiseled trailing vines. She nodded, swallowing hard at the statue he'd become, then turned sharply and disapparated. The end. So good. Oh. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it- your stories are so lyrical. They're they're just like poetry. Thank you very, very much. I try to, I th- it's not quite right to say have fun. I do have fun when I write. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's that thing of enjoyment. Like, what do I enjoy putting on the page? And it's, it's, it's always, and I say it in replies and stuff, it gives me such joy to know that other people enjoy it too. Mm-hmm. And I love being able to play with language um, where I can. You know, I think that's what a lot of writing is, is play, play with language there sorry i just put that little uh, bit at the end yeah wow she is such a good writer and the way she reads is just uh she does the best snape voice really pulls you into the immersion of it Mm -hmm. yeah i like the the spy versus order trope i think i have several snonks on my to read list just need more time. There's not enough hours in the day. <laughs> there aren't. Now, last but not least, uh, we have some Snowmine. 
Yeah, we do. <laughs> so, not, so now, do you want to kind of intro it or? Sure. I mean, I did put a little bit of intro in the recording and I'm assuming we kept that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then I would just say that the thing that I like to keep in mind when I read this is it was written a while ago. This fic is like 15 years old. Oh. Um, and holiday themed fanfic is a chance to explore the clash of magic and muggle. This fic in particular was from a time before. Um, and and we we a lot of the like pre half blood prince fic had assumed that Snape was pure blood. So pairing him with Hermione for a holiday meant we got that kind of rom-com worlds collide trope going on. And then later we discovered he was half blood. And that means he's a little more flexible. We can actually put him in either role for just about any partner. Um, so I, I would expect to find a lot more holiday fic where we get that worlds collide thing going on. Um, and this is, yeah, this is a good example of it. Okay. So not to know by Subversa. This is Jalapeno Eye Popper. You can call me Hal. It is both my privilege and pleasure to be reading chapters three and four of Send Not to Know by Subversa, a Snape-Hermione holiday classic, published at Ashwinder in 2007, just before the release of Deathly Hallows. Subversa cross-posted at AO3 in 2019, so if you'd like to follow along with the text, both of those are good options. The story summary includes the quote by John Donne, from which we get the title of the story. Send not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Previously, in chapters 1 and 2 of Send Not to Know, we learn about Hermione's bad breakup with Ron, and her subsequent decision to spend the Christmas holidays at home, alone. She is determined to enjoy her holiday, even if it is lonely. Dumbledore compels Snape to act as her bodyguard, and neither one is thrilled to be in the other's company for the holiday. However, their chilly defenses begin to thaw when Snape nurses Hermione through a particularly bad migraine. Chapter 3 It's beginning to look a lot like... Sunday morning dawned bright and clear. The temperature held steady, below freezing, but the sky was a perfect, unclouded blue. Hermione sang to herself in the shower. She had thought she would be all alone on Christmas, but she was actually going to have company. In that case, they might as well celebrate. She would bring down the decorations from the attic, and procure a tree and the makings of a Christmas dinner, and perhaps she would buy her usual Christmas gifts after all. It was not Harry's fault that Ron was an idiot, nor was it Ginny's, and she knew that each of them had presents for her because they were so transparent when asking questions and so bad at keeping secrets. After patiently plaiting her thick, long, bushy hair into a French braid down her back, she dressed in her favorite denims, last year's Weasley sweater, which was embroidered with tiny books, and pulled on her heavy brown boots. She ran down the stairs and into the kitchen, her spirits high. Good morning, Professor, she said, bustling about to pour a packet of flavored porridge into a bowl, add milk, and put it in the microwave. Isn't it a glorious day? The glower which met her from behind the newspaper might have cowed a lesser mortal. A grunt was Snape's only response. I feel like a new person today. Thank you for looking after me yesterday. The microwave beeped, and she removed the bowl of porridge, carrying it to the table. What did you just do to that porridge? I nuked it, sir. Why? Sate moved swiftly, his nonverbal Wingardium Leviosa floating the bowl off the table and into the sink before Hermione could complete her thought. That was my breakfast! Do you have any idea what the ingestion of irradiated food will do to you? He thundered. Nonplussed, Hermione gazed into his darkened countenance. What in the world ailed the man? Unless... unless he took her literally? She dissolved into gales of laughter. 
There were many things Severus Snape could endure with equanimity. Being ridiculed was, unfortunately, not one of them. He rose from his place at the table and stood over her, an ugly expression on his face. Even one day previously, the potions master's threatening attitude would have subdued her. But after having him look after her, with as much solicitude as she might have received from her own head of house, Hermione was not afraid. She plucked a paper tissue from the box on the counter behind her and dried her cheeks. I'm sorry, sir, she said as her laughter subsided. The term nuked is slang. The microwave oven produces electromagnetic radiation that is exactly the correct wavelength to heat the water molecules in the food, which in turn heats the food itself. It's perfectly safe, I promise you. Snape struggled with himself. It would be so satisfying to snarl at the girl. He loathed appearing uninformed, especially to a student, but there was no way he could now pretend he knew exactly how the microwave contraption worked after betraying such ignorance. Continue by all means, he sneered. Eat your electromagnetically radiated food. I'll be outside, surveying the perimeter. Hermione cringed slightly as the front door slammed shut. She might have handled that more diplomatically, she supposed. Why did the man have to be so prickly? She chuckled as she retrieved her bowl from the thankfully empty sink and began to eat her breakfast. The better question was, why was she surprised? Surely there was a picture of Severus Snape beside the word prickly in the World Wizarding Dictionary. The rest of the morning passed in silence, with Snape reading in the sitting room, ignoring Hermione's attempts at conversation. Finally, she decided to ignore him as well. Choosing a video from the shelf, she popped it into the player and settled down on the sofa to watch one of her favorite seasonal shows. Before long, the movie had Snape's attention. That is the most obnoxious child I've ever seen, he muttered, watching Kevin McAllister's antics as he was left home alone by his family. Hermione's gleeful laughter as she watched the little boy outwit the burglars drew his eyes more than once, though he did not laugh himself. When the boy's mother showed up on Christmas morning, Hermione sniffled and wiped her eyes on her sleeve, but when it was over, her spirits rebounded almost immediately. We need Christmas biscuits! She stopped long enough to turn on the machine which she referred to as the stereo, putting in a flat silver disc that began to play seasonal music. Then she went to the kitchen and began to make noise. Snape stood and attended to the fire in the hearth, adding additional logs and arranging them in the grate with a flick of his wand. He had not been in a private home at Christmas in nearly twenty years, and the last time he had been at the Malfoys, where the house elves attended to one's every whim and the atmosphere was cold and formal. Since that time, he had spent the holiday at Hogwarts, which had traditions of its own. His childhood home carried for him memories that were both good and bad. Some of the good memories were of his mother at Christmas time. She loved the season and would sing while she baked the treats that he was allowed to have only at this time of year. The child in the kitchen opened the oven, not the microwave, but the actual oven, and removed a tray of something that filled the house with an aroma of cinnamon and nutmeg. Snape relaxed in the armchair and closed his eyes as he inhaled the scent of the homemade biscuits. Underlain by the smell of burning wood in the hearth, he dismissed the ache, which he presently felt beneath his sternum, as the undoubted product of hastily consumed luncheon, even when the sensation intensified, as the child commenced to sing along with the music in a soft, sweet soprano. Giving in to an urge that would normally never assail him, Snape wandered into the kitchen, ostensibly to produce a glass of water, and permitted the girl to put him to work, stirring batter in a bright yellow bowl with a long wooden spoon. Hermione startled awake when the hoarse shout from below stairs echoed in her room. Crookshanks was waiting at the door when she shoved her feet into her Winnie the Pooh slippers and crept out onto the landing her way lit up by the tip of her wand. She and the cat moved silently down the stairs and into the sitting room. 
Snape was quiet now, laying upon his back on the sofa, his bare arms stretched up and crossed behind his head. Hermione could clearly see the dark mark on his left forearm, which he had so bravely revealed to Cornelius Fudge after the return of the Dark Lord. The pillow she had provided for him was on the floor, as was the blanket. She could see how his thrashing had twisted the strapped vest he wore about his torso, separating it from the black trousers into which it had been tucked, revealing an expanse of his very pale stomach. Hermione forced her eyes away from the intriguing planes of her sleeping professor's abdominal muscles and replaced the blanket over his sleeping form, being careful to cover his stocking feet, which extended over the end of the cushions. She padded out of the room and up the stairs, only to return shortly thereafter with something which she placed on the seat of the armchair, on top of the pillow she had retrieved from the floor. When Crookshanks curled up on the arm of the couch, just above Snape's head, Hermione smiled and left him there. Snape opened his eyes the next morning to find he had been roused by the girl's familiar, whose tail was tickling his face. He pushed himself into a sitting position, glaring at the cat. I thought you slept with her, he grumbled. Crookshanks began to purr and butted his head against the professor's arm. Keep your fleas to yourself, or you will discover the meaning of the saying there is more than one way to skin a cat, he promised. Crookshanks flipped his tail in answer. Snape rubbed his hands over his stubbled cheeks and groaned. He could shave with his wand, but he much preferred his razor, and what he would give for a shower. But he'd brought no personal items of that nature, nor a change of clothing, vowing to himself that cleansing charms would suffice for this sojourn, as he did not actually intend to sleep during his stay. Of course, he had also not intended to eat or to speak to the girl, and he'd end up doing all three. He found the house, in spite of its indisputable muggle nature, to be a place of comfort, and the child behaved to him as if he were a favored uncle or an older brother. It was surprisingly pleasant. He noticed that his pillow, instead of being on the sofa, was on the armchair. And what was that on top of the pillow? He summoned the pillow to him and it brought with a black fleece tracksuit. Obviously, the girl had brought these to him. When had she come in? Why had she been prowling about in the night? Well, that explains you anyway, he muttered to the cat as he stood and gathered his shirt and coat before going to the bathroom to perform his morning cleansing charms. When he emerged from the bathroom and entered the kitchen, it was to find Hermione there before him, with coffee brewing and breakfast cooking. Good morning, she said cheerfully. Your owl brought your paper. It's on the table. Have some eggs and toast. Snape poured some coffee and accepted the plate she offered him. I want to go shopping, she said, joining him at the table. If wishes were thestrals, then beggars would ride, he said dismissively. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Hermione sipped her milk. I am going shopping today. Would you care to come? Snape set his coffee mug on the table with a snap. You are not leaving this house. It is my job to keep you safe, and I cannot do that if you go gallivanting all over creation. Hermione finished chewing her bite of toast and washed it down with a sip of milk before responding. I have some shopping to do, Professor. You can come with me if you like, but I'm not going to be held prisoner in my own home. Though he'd never admitted defeat, in time it was understood that he would accompany her on the shopping expedition. Hermione levitated the dirty breakfast dishes to the sink and set them to washing, all while examining Snape from the corner of her eye. He could look so much better if he would just wash his hair properly. How could she induce him to do so? Well, she needed no further delays this morning. At least he acknowledged that she was leaving the house to shop. The next altercation involved transportation. I am not entering that vehicle. Snape stood in the Granger's garage, his arms crossed belligerently over his chest. Hermione looked from her mother's car to the professor and back again. But how else are we going to get to the shops? And are we going to bring our shopping home? She opened the driver's side door and slid in. Come on, it's getting late. Do you imagine that you can operate this machine? He demanded. Yes, I have my license. Would you like to see it? He snorted. We can operate and you can do your shopping in Diagon Alley. 
like the witch you are, and if we cannot carry your shopping bags, then you have bought too much. He strode to the open car door and leaned over, grasping her arm and compelling her to exit. Come on, it's getting late, he reminded her. They disapparated from her back garden, and Hermione found that he was not a bad companion for shopping. The shops of Diagon Alley were just beginning to open when they stepped through the enchanted arch from the leaky cauldron, and the holly and the red ribbons adjoining the shop windows, along with the snow on the ground, made it all very festive. Hermione found the gifts she wanted for Harry and Ron. Yes, she would buy a gift even for Ron, for she wanted to be his friend if not his girlfriend, in quality Quidditch supplies. And a lovely cashmere scarf, hat, and glove set for Ginny in glad rags. In the men's department, she saw an exquisite black turtleneck cashmere jumper. A quick glance around showed her that Snape was seated near the front of the store, immersed in the book he had produced from his cloak pocket. She paid for her selections and buried the jumper at the bottom of her shopping bag, beneath the colorful hat and scarf set that she would send to Ginny. You cannot apparate with a fir tree! She stomped her foot, sending the powdery snow from the previous night's fall up in a cloud. I want a Christmas tree. It's not Christmas without a tree. But he was adamant, and they returned to her home with only her shopping bags. After supper that evening, she pulled out the yellow mixing bowl. Snape wandered in from the sitting room. No moving picture tonight? Maybe later. I thought I would bake now. Again? She gave him a look of fond exasperation. Well, you keep eating the biscuits I make, don't you? If I don't bake more, then where will we be? Snape froze at her expression, his own impassive mask falling into place over his face, returning him to the forbidding potions master. Suit yourself, he said indifferently, before going out of the house to patrol the area. Hermione noticed that though Snape paid no apparent attention to the movie du jour, which was White Christmas, he seemed to have recovered his mood enough to enjoy the homemade biscuits with the cocoa she served before going up to bed. Didn't you care for the movie? she asked, dipping the spice biscuit into her cocoa as she sat with him before the fire. The man actually wanted bad weather, Snape said incredulously, and Hermione was still chuckling when she went up the stairs to sleep. The muffled shouts from the sitting room scarcely startled her when she sat up in her bed at three in the morning. Her bedroom door, which she'd left ajar so Crookshanks could visit them both during the night, allowed her to hear him more clearly. She was certain she heard him cry, Mother! before his words became incoherent. Picking up her wand, she padded downstairs and into the sitting room, telling herself that she simply wanted to be sure he was all right. The first sight that met her eyes was that of Crookshanks, who was curled up on Snape's midsection and purring. The fingers of the professor's right hand were threaded through the thick orange fur. This time he managed to retain the pillow, though the blanket had once again drifted to the floor. As she moved to drape the blanket over his form again, she saw that he was wearing the black tracksuit she'd brought from her father's closet. They weren't pajamas, but they had to be more comfortable than sleeping in his clothes. She saw his coat, trousers, and shirt arranged carefully on the armchair, and for a moment she reached out and touched the black wool coat before going back upstairs to her own bed. Chapter 4 Winter Wonderland When Hermione woke up the next day, it was to find snow falling outside her windows. Feeling terribly Christmassy, she pulled on an old jumper with a picture of Father Christmas and his reindeer, unmindful that it was rather too small for her now, tight across her breasts and leaving a bit of midriff bare each time she lifted her arms. She pulled on her favorite low-riding denims and a thick pair of socks accompanied by her sturdy boots and ran down to the kitchen. Snape sat at the table with his customary plate of toast, but he had braved the automatic coffee maker and successfully brewed a pot of coffee. Luxury, Hermione moaned, opening the fridge to pull out the milk and pour a dollop into her coffee cup. She grabbed a handful of biscuits from the plate on the counter and joined him at the table. Isn't it beautiful out? I just love when it snows. Snape lowered the paper 
and watched the child begin to eat spice biscuits for breakfast. I'm quite sure there is porridge available for nuking, Miss Granger. Hermione giggled before eating another biscuit. Yeah, but there's something so holiday-like about eating biscuits for breakfast. Snape's lips thinned in disapproval, but he went back to reading the paper. I'm going tobogganing, Hermione announced, setting her empty coffee mug in the sink. Would you like to come? You'll do no such thing. The park is just down the block, Professor, and no one will be there. I'll be perfectly safe. I haven't been sledging at home in years. Snape watched helplessly as the impossible girl went into the connecting garage and returned with two red wooden sledges. Aren't they beauties? They were my father's. I haven't been home when there was snow on the ground since I went to Hogwarts. Come with me, sir. It will be fun. Snape bowed to the inevitable, wrapping a Slytherin scarf about his throat before donning his cloak. That doesn't look like the Slytherin scarves now. Is it an old one? Hermione asked as she wound her Gryffindor scarf about her neck. From my student days, he replied shortly, and was moved to smirk by her look of amazement. That does not make it an antique, Miss Granger, he added. To Snape's amazement, it was rather enjoyable to go tobogganing with Hermione Granger. The park was a small neighborhood affair with a play park at one end and one good hill, perfect for sledging. As the girl had prophesied, there was no one else there, and it took her a little less than an hour to persuade him to take his turn sliding down the hill. They'd been at it for long enough that both of them were quite red in the cheeks and chapped at the lips from the cold and wind. The snowfall had ceased and the children were beginning to show up at the park, with older siblings and parents in tow. One last trip down the hill, Hermione wheedled, when he suggested that they go. I'll race you, he scoffed. That would not be a race at all. She laughed. You are an arrogant Slytherin, she taunted. His eyes glinted devilishly. You are a foolhardy Gryffindor, he answered. What would be the purpose of a race? What would the winner receive? She thought for a moment. The loser has to cook breakfast every morning for the rest of the week and do all of the dishes. He lifted one superior eyebrow. I like my toast dry and my tea unsweetened. She laughed again. Well, I like my toast with strawberry jam, and I take two sugars in my tea. Thank you for asking. Snape lowered himself onto his sled. How very kind of you to share that information. But I cannot conceive of what use it will be to me. Hermione threw herself onto hers. All right, big talker, on the count of three. Snape was clearly off to a cleaner, faster start, but Hermione desperately wanted to win. Pushing too hard, she overbalanced herself and tumbled off the sledge head over heels, until she slammed into a horrified Severus Snape and knocked him off his as well. They came to a rest in a tangle of arms and legs, three feet farther down the hill than the spot where the two sledges had collided and stopped. Hermione had the wind knocked out of her and could not catch her breath. Snape realized he was virtually on top of the child and began to move away from her until he noticed the panicked look in her eyes. Hermione? What's the matter? Are you hurt? His hands were frantically pressing her arms through the fabric of her muggle coat. When she was able to drag in a lungful of air... She answered, no, not hurt. No air. Snape supported his weight on his forearms, looking down into her face, anxiety for her clearly written in his face. Hermione took another lungful of air and, to Snape's amazement, began to laugh. What are you laughing at? He demanded, scowling. You. Me. He raised himself to his hands and knees, neatly straddling her inert form and pinned her wrists in the snow. I won the race. I have you pinned in the snow, and you're laughing at me? Hermione nodded, but at the same time she felt a strange excitement rising within her. She'd been in this position more than once with Ron when he was kissing her, though Ron had never held her wrists down. The immobility was increasing the wild feeling swelling up in her tummy, into her chest. She thought 
The feeling would come bubbling out her lips like laughter, but she felt the urge to laugh dying in her throat as she became more aware of the body of the man on top of her. Snape watched in fascination as Hermione's thoughts and emotions played over her face. Suddenly, he became aware that he was still pinning her to the ground, and that the moment when such an action could have been passed as playfulness was gone. He had a healthy, vibrant, entrancing woman beneath him, not struggling but submitting to his dominance, and the primal center of his hindbrain began to chant, Take her, take her, take her, take her! With a Herculean effort, Snape wrenched himself away from her, standing, beginning to brush the snow from his cloak. As he stood, the rest of the world came crashing back to his consciousness, and he realized he had ceased to be aware of the presence of other people in the park. Wordlessly, he held a gloved hand out to Hermione and helped her to stand. As he did so, he reflected that these days of living alone with her in her parents' home had a dreamlike quality about them, completely at variance with their true real lives as student and teacher, order member and death eater, Gryffindor and Slytherin. I don't care, he thought defiantly, bending and grasping the sledges in his hands. I can have this time. The rest will take care of itself. As they trudged back to the Granger's house, their previous camaraderie reasserting itself in the aftermath of the awkward moment on the ground, almost as if the interruption had never occurred. Snape and Hermione left their snowy boots in the garage and hung their outerwear over straight chairs before the fire to dry. Hermione went into the room where the machines, which she referred to as the washer and dryer, were kept and emerged with two large fluffy green towels in her hands. You can use the shower in my parents' room, and I'll use the one in my bathroom, she told him, handing him one of the towels. Don't forget to bring the tracksuit to change into after your shower. Snape stood in the middle of the sitting room in his stocking feet with a towel in his hands, feeling rather foolish. That won't be necessary, he began. Don't be silly. I know you haven't had a proper shower since you got here. You'll catch your death if you don't get warm and into some dry clothes. Besides, it'll give us a chance to wash your shirt and your underthings. I'll get you a nice warm pair of socks to put on, too. He had followed her to the foot of the staircase, but he stood there, irresolute. Come on, then, she said, smiling over her shoulder at him. It's my fault you ended up going arse over tea kettle into the snow anyway. With his eyes fixed on the arse in question, he followed her up to the promised shower. An hour later, Hermione descended to the kitchen to find Snape stirring a pot of stew. The container in which her mother had frozen the stew was in the sink. The aroma was mouthwatering. Snape was wearing the tracksuit and the thick gray socks she'd found for him in her father's drawer. She hoped he was also wearing the clean pants she'd put out with the socks. He looked cozy and comfortable and altogether unlike her professor. She liked him this way, except, Your hair isn't clean! Snape turned to see her standing in the doorway, and he glared at her fiercely. Good afternoon, Hermione, he said, as if he were speaking to a recalcitrant six-year-old. Did you have a nice shower? Are you warm now? She wore pajama pants adorned with Christmas trees with an oversized crimson sweatshirt. Her hair had been pulled into a plait, and her feet were stuffed into these preposterous bare shoes. The sight of her gladdened his heart. Why didn't you wash your hair? She demanded, reaching up to rub a strand between her fingers. I did wash it he snapped. Get your hands out of my hair. Wait, I'll bet there wasn't any shampoo in the shower, was there? What did you use to wash it? Bar soap. Leave me alone. She left the room, and he heard her climbing the staircase. Moments later, he heard her coming back. She entered the kitchen with a bottle in her hand. I knew I had this in my bathroom. It's from the summer I decided my hair would behave better if I used a more astringent shampoo. He turned to look at her, and she grinned. No, it didn't help, but it's the perfect formula for your hair. Come on, I'm going to wash it. Panic seized him. I'm not showering with you. Hermione chuckled as she pulled a chair over to the sink. 
I can do it right here. You're tall enough. Just sit down and lean your head back. Snape's self-hatred told him to refuse, but there was a part of him that wanted to feel her fingers in his hair. With a huge sigh, as if he were making a great sacrifice on her behalf, he sat in the chair and allowed her to drape a towel around his shoulders. She began to run the water, and he could feel the heat as the water warmed. Lean back a bit, she encouraged, and he did, extending his neck and letting his hair fall into the sink. She used a small nozzle attachment, which he had seen but not tried. It flooded his scalp with warm water, and her fingers worked the shampoo into his hair with firm, circular strokes. Snape nearly purred as she massaged his scalp, and as she bent over him, he could smell the mint from her toothpaste and the spicy perfume she'd put on her throat. He felt he could remain there forever with her so close, the warm water cascading through his hair, but all too soon she was finished with him, and the moment had passed. Sit up, she said, and as he did, she moved closer to him, using the towel about his shoulders to wrap his hair and squeeze the water from it. He was acutely aware of her torso, inches away from his face, and he wanted nothing so much as to bury his face in her fragrance and rest his cheek upon her heart. It's really clean now, she murmured, drawing a wide tooth comb through his hair, while holding her wand and casting a drying charm. Abruptly, he stood, moving away from her. If I'm clean enough for you now, shall we eat? Hermione bit her lip, drying her hands on the towel he abandoned. She had really forgotten to whom she was speaking, feeling as if she'd been talking to a friend, a dear friend, whom she could trust and with whom she could share her thoughts. But he wasn't her friend. He was her greasy, unpleasant potions professor, her natural enemy from the moment she stepped foot in Hogwarts, hater of mudbloods and all things Harry Potter. No. No matter how he seemed at Hogwarts, here he'd been different. Just the two of them, alone in her room, were living a very companionable life, one she enjoyed far more than being with her two best friends, if truth be told. Whatever was happening now, though it could not last. He would never behave this way with her, if Harry, or Ron, or Draco Malfoy, or any other student from his house were present to see it. I don't care, she thought, moving to take down bowls from the cupboard. This is the way it is right now, and now is enough. What will be, will be. All of the excitement of the morning of tobogganing had exhausted her, and once she had filled her tummy with two bowls of her mum's stew, she was drowsy. Still, she sat down on the sofa and popped in one of her Christmas movies. If she was surprised that she drifted off after the movie had been in the machine for less than 20 minutes, Snape was not. He smirked to himself and covered her with his blanket, wielding his wand to stoke the fire. All he needed now to create perfection was a glass of brandy. Perhaps Mr. Granger partook. He prowled down the unexplored back hallway and opened the door to the room beyond the bathroom. It appeared to be a man's study, and on the sideboard stood two decanters with glasses. Pouring three fingers of the brandy, he returned to the sitting room and found himself being pulled into the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, which he watched while the fire crackled merrily and the girl on the couch slept on. As Hermione stirred on the sofa, the first thing she realized was that her muscles were sore. She smiled to herself as she remembered climbing the hill and sliding down on her sledge repeatedly. Pushing herself into a sitting position, the first thing she saw on the far side of the hearth was a large pine tree covered with snow. She blinked. There was no pine tree in her sitting room. She'd wanted one, but Snape had refused. What in the world? Is it straight? The voice came from behind the tree, which moved fractionally to the left. Hermione went to the wall and flipped on the overhead lights, which showed her Severus Snape standing behind the tree and holding the trunk, his arm thrust through the branches. Lean it forward just a bit, Hermione said, entering the spirit of the thing. She had no idea why there was a tree in her sitting room, but she'd wanted one so she would not ask questions, even though it was very difficult to restrain herself. Snape leant the tree forward as requested, and Hermione said, Perfect! 
A muttered spell secured the tree in place, and Snape released his hold on it, stepping back and pulling his sap-stained gloves from his hands. He looked uncommonly relaxed and rather pleased with himself. Oh, your gloves, she exclaimed, coming forward to take them from him. You got that sticky resin all over them. Snape's hand closed instinctively over hers, and he peered down into her face with a speculative look in his glittering black eyes. Hermione's breath hitched in her throat, and there was a great swooping sensation in her tummy. She was acutely aware of his long fingers closed about her hand as she took another step closer. She could smell the tang of the shampoo she'd used on his hair, and something that reminded her of her father. Was it whiskey? You've been drinking, she said, unable to break the connection of her eyes gazing into his. Some of your father's brandy, he replied. It was cold outside. Where did you go? A small but genuine smile touched his lips. The park. No one will ever miss it. She followed his gaze to the tree and pulled away from him, diverted. You stole that tree from the park? I didn't steal it, he objected. It's a tree, Hermione. You cannot own a tree. Of course you can own a tree, she said. My parents own every tree planted in our garden. Well, that tree didn't come from someone's garden, did it? It came from a wood. Hagrid brings Christmas trees from the Forbidden Forest every year, he snorted, turning from her and beginning to remove his cloak, as if I would stoop to thievery. Hermione watched as he moved back into the hallway to hang his cloak. Then she laid his gloves upon the coffee table, holding her wand to them and murmuring, Drago, to remove the sticky substance from the soft black leather. Well, as long as the police did not come knocking on her door, demanding the arrest of the person who'd stolen a tree from a public park, she wouldn't worry about it. Her stern, grim potions professor had gone out of his way to cater to her whim, and straddled her hips and held her down in the snow, but she would absolutely not dwell on that. She was simply going to enjoy decorating her Christmas tree. After all, tomorrow was Christmas Eve. Snape thumbed idly through Potioner Quarterly and cast the occasional glance at the girl as she fussed over the tree. After they'd finished their meal of pizza, which was delivered to the house, she'd gone into her father's study and brought out the brandy, putting it on the end table beside his armchair. He'd been coerced into helping her put lights on the tree, which she referred to as a two-man operation, but she had done the rest of it herself, humming along with the music she played on the stereo while she hung ornaments on branches of the tree. There, she said brightly, stepping away from the tree to survey its splendor. Isn't it beautiful? Snape darted a glance at the tree from the corner of his eyes. I am no judge of muggle holiday decorations, he said flatly. Her face fell a little. Well, I think it's lovely. From behind the curtain of his hair, he watched her as she shifted her weight from one foot to the other. He felt frustrated to note that non-greasy hair did not hang about his face the same way his usually oily hair did. It made it more difficult for him to watch her covertly. Finally, she seemed to come to a decision. Well, good night, sir. Thank you for the tree. Good night, he replied, and permitted himself to watch her as she left the room, her demeanor a bit dashed by his lack of enthusiasm. He had shown a bit too much enthusiasm thus far, that day. Restraint was what was now required. Hermione sat up late that night, her pillows propped against her headboard, her transfiguration text open across her knees. She was too overwrought from the excitement of the day and the long nap of the afternoon to sleep just yet. The bedroom door was cracked open and she found herself listening for sounds from the sitting room. She'd just begun to doze over her transfiguration notes when the now familiar sound of her professor's nighttime distress reached her. Without hesitation, she padded down to the sitting room to check on him. Crookshanks crouched on the arm of the sofa near Snape's head, his yellow eyes shining in the patch of moonlight that sliced across the room. The blanket and pillow were both on the floor. The top portion of the tracksuit was rucked up almost to his chest by his thrashing about. For a moment, Hermione stood near his feet, letting her eyes dwell upon his stomach with the intriguing line of dark hair that trailed from the dip of his navel down under the edge of the tracky bottoms. 
Forcing herself to stop staring at him, she bent to retrieve the blanket, only to have her upper arm clamped in a merciless grasp. Crying out, she instinctively reached for her wand, only to have his wand thrust under her chin. Don't spy on me, he grated, the fingers holding her arm in a bruising grip. Hermione jerked her arm from him, her other hand coming up to rub the sore spot. I wasn't spying, she cried. You were having another nightmare. I was only checking on you to make sure you're all right. He sat up, rubbing his face with his hands. Do not approach me when I am sleeping. My self-defense reactions are swifter than my cognitive reasoning. He scowled at her. Go back to bed. Hermione glared back at him. I'm going to make some cocoa. Should I make enough for two? She took his grunt as a scent. They sat side by side on the sofa, the fire crackling in the hearth and the Christmas tree lights twinkling gently, making a colorful pattern on the ceiling. The homemade cocoa seemed to soothe them both, Snape's nerves no doubt helped along by the dollop of brandy he added to each of his mugs of the hot chocolate. You have a nightmare every night, she told him, conveying both deference and concern in her tone. I don't have nightmares, he replied tersely. I am a restless sleeper. Hermione did not contradict him, but kept her eyes on the fire. I have nightmares sometimes. She chanced to glance at his face and found him gazing into the firelight as well. I dream about the Department of Mysteries. Snape's nod was nearly imperceptible, but Hermione felt it was an invitation to continue. I remember when the curse hit me. My last thoughts as I began to fall was that I'd never know what marks I made on my OWLs. Snape snorted. Why does that not surprise me? I imagine you did well on your OWLs, she said. He gave her a sidelong glance. As well as you did. She felt a glow of satisfaction. You know my OWL scores? I'm one of your teachers, of course I know. He snorted again. Besides, your head of house natters on about you in the staff room. No one is ignorant of your scores. The fire burned lower as the time passed by. Two intellects meeting and retreating in one area of discussion, only to circle about and approach again from another direction. Snape continued on in his stubborn belief that his interactions with the girl were somehow separate from his everyday life. Recklessly, he relaxed into her kind concern and her flattering attentions. But it was humiliating having one's boyfriend take up with another girl. From what I understand, you left your mark, so to speak. Hermione choked over her cocoa. <laughs> you know about that? The school matron takes her tea with the rest of the staff, you know. I imagine the entire school is aware of your particular skill. He slanted a sideways glance at her. Interesting curse, to carve the actual words into their flesh. That required some control. Hermione dipped her head. I was very angry. Don't be ashamed. It was a curse worthy of a Slytherin. She made a face at him. I'm not sure how to take that. Consider the source, he advised her. She tilted her head to one side and regarded him thoughtfully. A compliment, then. Of the highest order, he replied, with a slight quirk of his lips. After a moment, he added, I've heard of worse things in such situations. At Hogwarts? Lovers' quarrels in Slytherin House are the stuff of legend, I promise you. Tell me, she wheedled, turning sideways on the sofa to face him, crossing one leg beneath her. He considered her for a moment, his head resting against the back of the sofa, his clean hair falling back away from his face. He was relaxed and at ease, a heady feeling for him. The fire lit one side of her face, leaving the other in shadow. It was as if he were seeing only a part of her. Perhaps she, too, was taking this as time out of the context of her reality, leaving her school self-dormant in the shadowed portion of her psyche, and letting her doppelganger conduct her actions for the holiday. "'You are the oddest girl, Hermione,' he said lazily narrowing his eyes at her. Tell me about world-class Slytherin Rav, Severus, she said coaxingly. Cheek, he murmured, and was oddly pleased with her soft, easy laughter. 
The fire died down to embers before Hermione could tear herself away. It was amazingly comfortable, sitting in the dark with her professor, talking about everything that crossed her mind. He would not speak much of himself, smoothly directing the conversation away from personal matters of his own, but he listened to her personal observations, her confidences, and occasionally let fall a word of counsel. As she settled beneath the duvet on her bed, she reflected that over the last few days it had come to seem as if Professor Snape were a different person. He had a wry sense of humor, a sharp mind, and a sharp tongue to go with it, she had to admit, but he also listened to her as if what she had to say was worth hearing, unlike the boys who squirmed and fidgeted in those circumstances. If his calm guidance was obviously the same as what her own head of house would tell her, there was still something in his manner that seemed far more personal than Professor McGonagall had ever appeared. As her eyes drifted closed, she smiled to herself, holding the thought of her new friend close to her heart, Severus. Snape punched the blameless pillow beneath his head and turned to his side, inconveniencing Crookshanks, who'd been curled up on his stomach. The cat leapt down with an indignant meow and trotted out of the room. Go on, Snape muttered bitterly, tugging the blanket over his shoulder. You can go sleep with her, Hermione. He closed his eyes, and for a moment a spasm of emotion passed across his face. You're a damn fool, he said flatly, though it was not clear whether he was speaking to the cat or to himself. This ends chapter four. Thank you for joining me as I read chapter excerpts from Send Not to Know by Subversa. <laughs> Very well done. Thank you. It was a supreme privilege to uh, read out such classic. I, I remember when you posted the <laughs> the notice and request and I'm like, oh, oh, hand up first in line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't know about this one until somebody brought it to my attention i went back through some of the posts on some of the discord servers i'm on and yeah it, it's a consistent mm -hmm. recommendation around the holidays yeah it's just nice the kind of gentle camaraderie that they develop over the course of the story this is one of my favorites and uh i never really thought about this a holiday fic i was more of the the typical dynamic okay we are stuck together for a certain period of time and how that changes uh, your opinion of another person because well, you are now 24-7 together. So you you see a different uh, version of the person who you usually just see in the classroom or something. And even though the dynamics supposed to be still teacher-student, just, just the fact that she's basically ordering him around, like, I want to do this, <laughs> if either come or not. And then he's like, well, I don't have a choice. I will just follow you. Like, that's just... <laughs> <laughs> hilarious i think and uh and also crookshanks i i love a good crookshanks snape relationship like mm -hmm. just just a very very often in in fix crookshanks is like oh i like this man i will just abandon my owner for now i'm just live with you <laughs> like <laughs> it's just i love how animals behave with people they like and when people they don't like like i i have the same feeling over my animals so it's a good good addition in, in any uh, fix, for me at least. I could definitely see the similarities between, well, because you said 2007 was when it came out. Yes. Yeah, that's that's actually when I started reading the books and also fan fiction at the same time. And the similarities between that and the snary that was coming out at that time, like really strong. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We had some interesting fan theories around Snape from those mm -hmm. early days. I, I joined the fandom in the year 2000, right after book four came out. I set down my copy of Goblet of Fire and was like, 
oh man, what did Dumbledore just send Snape to do? And mm-hmm. I have to hit the tripod web rings and my dog pile search. And I went and found all of the all of the Snape fan theories and wound up in fanfic that way. So yeah, the the debate about his parentage, like his his pedigree was a big deal and whether or not he was a pure blood or or something not so pure. So yeah, I wound up in a lot of fics where they really played up Snape the Pureblood with Muggleborn. Mm-hmm. I remember Snape Manor, like yes. all the fics that had Snape Manor. Yeah, or, or eventually Prince Manor is another mm-hmm. location. Yeah, that was recently a new thing for me because when I started reading fan fictions in 2005-ish, I mostly read in Hungarian, so either they were translated or just written in Hungarian. And uh, I only a couple of years ago started reading in English. And uh, I had this part of the the fix that nowadays come out where we know uh, his origins. And then when I go back to an older one, like, why are they making him pure blood? Oh, because it was written (laughs) in these times. So for me, even decades later, this this is like a a new experience. And they are still very enjoyable, I think. Yeah, totally agree. Also, I want to point out that we've we've read Fix pairing Snape with each of the Golden Trio throughout this. Yes. <laughs> well, I I meant to ask if y'all wanted to take a break at one point, but thank you for hanging on for this marathon. <laughs> yeah, this is like super bonus episode for everybody. That's yeah. It's been fun too, just like talking about all these fan fictions. And just learning about new pairings that I never thought of reading, but I will from now on. (laughs) I anticipate listening to the whole thing while I'm on the road, traveling for the holidays. It'll be good, good road tunes. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you, everybody. Lendi. Thank you for having me. Kel and Masao. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, as always. It's been really good fun. Want to go ahead and say happy holidays to everybody else as well? That's right. Everybody have a wonderful... Whatever comfort you get from fanfic. (laughs) I wish that for your holiday season too. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Thank you. I wish you do the same. All right. Everybody take care and thank you so much for being here. You too. Happy to be here. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. And there you have it. Thanks to Masao the dog and Jalapeno Popper for both reading and joining the listening party. Thank you, Blendy, for filling in at the last moment. Thanks to Pet Genius, Dan Puff, and Marshmallow McGonagall for reading their fix for us. Thanks to Snape Snail Tape for their reading of Solstice Carol. And thank you, Subversa, Starstruck1986, and Kuniganda for permission to feature their fix as well. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I hope everyone has a joyous holiday season and an awesome new year. Check out our FicRex page at snapechatpodcast.com for links to all these wonderful stories and more. And here we will say goodbye. We wish we didn't have to, but it hasn't escaped our notice that life isn't fair. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Tumblr and Twitter, email us, or leave a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. Support us on Coffee to help defray the cost of production. Many thanks to Nix for our continued work on our website at statechatpodcast.com. Be sure to check out Care Magical Shippers podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay snarky.